Welcome back to the Off The X Podcast. I am your host. My name is Cody. And tonight's guest is retired Diplomatic Security Service Supervisory Special Agent and Vice President of Retiree Affairs for the Diplomatic Security Service Special Agents Association, Mr. Jim Miner. I don't think in the whole time I've been doing this podcast that we've spoken to anyone in DS who has somehow uh, been involved in so many critical and historical events globally. Jim was in Mogadishu, Somalia in the early 90s. He supported the investigation of Ramzi Youssef. He worked the 1998 East Africa bombings of our U.S. embassies, the USS Cole, the Boston Marathon bomber, and was involved in the investigation of exactly what happened in Benghazi. Jim is an awesome guy, an awesome storyteller, so please listen in and enjoy, and I'll catch you all on the backside. Let's start then, if you don't mind, let's start talking about uh, your career. I have, I have a, a, an illustrious career in front of me. There's a lot of stuff we could talk about. I'd probably have to do a few episodes if, if, we, you know, if, we, if we want to knock all these out. But it, maybe, maybe start with the beginning and tell us uh, you know, when you came on a DS, what the training pipeline was like, and uh, then take us on to your first office. Yeah, I came out in 91. Uh, I didn't have prior... Uh, law enforcement. Uh, I was a prior Air Force, so sort of military, uh, you know, joking all the time. But uh, I did a few years in the military, the Air Force overseas, intercepting Soviet communications. And then I went to Air Force Academy for two years. And then I got out. My time was up in the, in the service. And I went back to New York and I took a couple of years to get my college degree from UCLA the university on the corner of Lexington Avenue in Manhattan. <laughs> uh, I got to poke phone at the UCLA guys. But uh, while I was there, uh, since I had a, a security clearance from the government before when I was in the military, uh, TS, uh, I met a friend who uh, recruited me to work. I became one of the uniform guards for the State Department, the white shirt guys that were there. Uh, one of the first ones, but I was working at the U.S. mission to the U.N. across from the U.N. on 45th and 1st. So while I was going to college full time during the day, I was working four to 12 full time at the U.S. mission as a white shirt, you know, armed security guard with a TS clearance. And I get to meet Doug Roberts, who was the RSO up there. And he basically recruited me and said, hey, you get your college degree, DS. You know, and all I saw was the agents all the time with the uh, U.S. ambassador at the time. It was Vernon Walters and Gene Kirkpatrick and, and some of the others. And I saw the agents going back and forth and you immediately think, Secret Service, <laughs> earpiece and, and running back and forth. But I got to talk to Doug and he's like, no, nah, serve overseas and do this stuff. Sounded great. You know, I had served overseas in the Air Force. I said, I'd love to travel again. And this sounds like an interesting thing. So came on in BSAC 39 in uh, 91. Uh, Dave Brackens, Lisa Grice, uh, Sean McConnell, uh, Andy Korpecki and stuff. Uh, the last few people are leaving. Ricky Colon, I think, was the last guy or almost the last guy who's uh, still on the job. And he was uh, the AD for the DO or something like that. So I left, I was a 14 and a two uh, from DS, but I probably would have easily made, I think, senior executive service having, you know, loved the job overseas and doing pretty well at it when I was there. But uh, I was looking forward to a good career. Uh, I had a girlfriend and got married in 93 or so. so. My first assignment when I graduated BSAC 39 was in New York field office. And which was great because I was from New York. Uh, born and raised, uh, lived out in Queens. And from talking to the people that once I realized I was coming on to the job, everyone said, come to New York. 
You know, you learn the job really in New York. Lots of protection, good criminal work. They had TDYs out in uh, Guatemala and Beirut. People were circulating back and forth. So lots to do. And that's, you know, like everybody else, that's what you want to do. You want to get your bones really quick, doing lots of protection and doing lots of criminal work. And New York was great for that. Uh, so made some arrests, uh, did lots of protection and, you know, lots and lots of protection. I think there was only one year in my two tours in New York where I got less than a thousand hours of overtime. That was like 986 hours of overtime in a year. So make an extra money and stuff and got your steps and stuff. Uh, we had a couple of great things happen in New York at the time. I mean, in 93, we had the World Trade Center bombed the first time by Ramsey Youssef. Uh, so that case went on for a, a little while. And then when we had a TDY PII guy up there, back when PII was known as counterterrorism, uh, they were working the case and they had a couple of uh, passport forward, visa forward cases they were working as part of the uh, Joint Terrorism Task Force investigation into, into uh, the attack, or 93 attack on the Trade Center. So I got to work some of those things, uh, helping out the JTTF, and then I got assigned to the JTTF. Uh, I became the airport resident agent first because I lived close to the airport. So again, lots of overtime, uh, working the airports. I could roll out of bed, dress up, and take me about 10 minutes door to door to get to the airport. So it was a natural for me. And a lot of guys that lived in New Jersey, we used to have a regular courier escort on Wednesday nights. And that was like eight or nine hours of overtime. You basically just sat on the tarmac at JFK and you waited for the courier to check in and make sure he could go to the girl's room. And finally, they loaded the pouches onto a plane, era freak, to Africa. And a couple of times it worked out great. The Jersey guys doesn't want to do it. So I take the seven or eight hours of overtime. I sat on the tarmac overnight a couple of times, usually snowstorms or plane broke or something like that. So good times working at the airport. And I eventually replaced Anthony Cardone out at the airport out there. And then some things happened like, plane crashes, uh, TWA 800, I worked that. And having an airport badge, you get me onto the tarmac and stuff, I was able to work easier out the airport for things. But my JTTF bilateral duty put me out onto both the boats. We were doing recovery out on the boats from the TWA plane. I worked with a, a medical examiner doing forensic examinations of the bodies that were coming back from being recovered floating and stuff. You identify the body and then you identify where the person sat on the plane. You looked at the injuries to try and figure out were they in front of the explosion? Were they behind the explosion? Was it, uh, you know, what might've caused the, the death? Uh, we worked on uh, with the team in the JTTF that was looking into the missile theory because there were talks about people get, the plane was shot down because it was going through a, a military operating area that night when it took off from JFK and went off to the east. It was flying parallel to Long Island and it passed through an MOA, but the military operating area was at a lower altitude and it was a, a C-130 or an HC-130 a refueling plane and a Blackhawk were doing the, uh, were doing our aerial refueling exercise. And of course, all this is captured by the ATC tapes and stuff that you see later. But Pierre Salinger came out and said, oh, there's a blip on the screen and clearly it's a missile that was fired from the military operating area that took down the plane. Now in two dimensions, you could see this blip going through the area at the same time that the TWA plane was also going through the area. The TWA has the air traffic control, the transponder code attached to it. So it's got that number and it identifies it as TWA 800 and stuff like that. But it turned out, you know, in two dimensions, you know, the airplane's flying in three dimensions. You can go over another plane, 
Well, the same time a plane is going, taking off or under, if you're just passing over the airport. So our investigation revealed that that was a, a Navy P-3 Orion that had a broken transponder that was still flying, but it had no pinging coming from it. So when it was going through the military operating area and it had just that, that line going through there. So it did pass through the area, but it was in contact with the tower and it was heading up to uh, a Navy base up in Maine near Portsmouth. And when the plane went down, the TWA 800 plane turned around, well, that little blip on the radar came back. It turned around on the radar and it came back and it circled for 20 to 25 minutes. That's, that's not a cruise missile. That's not a, you know, a, a heat-seeking missile and stuff that did there. It was a P-3 Orion filming the uh, place where the plane went down. The place was on fire and stuff. And later the FBI team up in uh, Boston went to Portsmouth and recovered that uh, infrared tape of the whole thing. So I got to work on, you know, interesting things like that. A guy from my squad went out to Mexico and he fired surface-to-air missiles at some planes that they got from the Air Force Boneyard to try and see what missile impacts look like on a 747, uh, the type of plane that went down in TWA. And we got to work till eventually we got to a point where the NTSB said, yeah, this looks like it was the center fuel tank that exploded. Center fuel tank had leaks. It was documented already. It had some leaks. And when the plane took off going to Paris, there was barely any fuel in the center fuel tank, but it was filled with aviation gas fumes. And they think either a, a ceramic pipe near the root of the air conditioner, which blows out really hot air, might've broken, heated the air right around the fuel tank, which made it more explosive. Or these huge four foot long test tubes that go into the center fuel tank might've cracked. And these test tubes have this low voltage wire in there, which could have caused a spark, which again, set off the center fuel tank as an explosion. So when you look at the graphic that the agency put up there, you just kind of see the plane exploding in the middle and the front of the plane drops off and the rest of the plane sort of just stalls, goes up a little, rolls over and goes down to the ground and, and crashes. So I spent, you know, whatever, six months work in that case as one of my first big JTTF cases. And then we had, you know, other planes crashed when I was doing JTTF over the years, uh, including, I, you know, years later, 9-11. I had to research... Uh... TW uh, was a 800, the one you just talked about. I hadn't heard yeah. of it prior to prior to our conversation. And uh, the one we always hear about is uh, Pan Am 103 with the two DS agents on it. And uh, yeah. that's a that's a flight that that <clears throat> that uh, we're, we're told about in BSAC and everything. And um, but hadn't heard about that one. But I do want to stop. I want to go back because you have too many good stories at New York. Uh, yeah, one of them in 1993, you went to Somalia and oh, yeah. you were uh, TDY there for the uh, special envoy. And a couple of things happened. Would you uh, want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that was, like I said, that was one of those things. New York had some TDYs. You'd go to Beirut. You'd go to Guatemala where they had this one pop up to go to Somalia. So, yeah, I signed up and, and got myself over there. Uh, DS icon, uh, Charlie Chase is the RSO. He still runs around in the D.C. area. And Pete Hargraves, Houston guy, Dallas guy, a uh, friend of mine also, uh, he was over there. So call sign cowboy and I was tiger. We were the bodyguards for the American ambassador and pretty austere combat, you know, kind of tour of duty. We lived in hooches, you know, like, uh, like later they called them what the Chewvilles, the containerized housing units, uh, buried halfway into the sand on the compound of what used to be the American embassy back in, I guess the early nineties. And then it was one of the first Inman buildings and uh, Inman walls and stuff on there. Oh, oh, a couple of good stories out of there. So uh, we took care of, we were bodyguard for the ambassador, but it was, uh, 
pretty austere. And before the military got there, the U.S. military got there, it was kind of bandits. Once you left the compound, you were out in bandit country all the time and subject to ambush and stuff. I'm used to, to drive past this place called K4 intersection, Kilo Marker, Kilo 4 uh, place on the way to the airport. We used to always get pot shots taken at the motorcade there. And it was just something you expected and you drove through and you're in a light armored vehicle and stuff. And either myself or Pete Hargraves, cowboy went down. We took the ambassador back and forth. And then uh, the military arrived and the hunt for ID was on. All that stuff that's in Black Hawk Down, uh, the taken down of the Osmanado and stuff like that, I was there for. Uh, I filmed the raid on Bacara Market, the one that's in the movie. I filmed that from the roof of the embassy that night. So I had some tape and I went to the people in the naked movie and say, yeah, I got some tape of that from the roof of the embassy. And they were like, no, nah, we got cooperation from the military. They had a bird up in the air filming the whole thing too. So we're kind of good to go. Uh, so trying times there. Uh, but around that time, uh, I started working with one of the TDY Marines, Joe Giordano, who later came to DS for many years and just retired, former Marine. He ran a Marine CI team there. So we hooked up and we were starting to run some sources out in the community. And uh, we ended up working out a deal where this guy was going to come in and talk to us about uh, uh, telling us where Mohammed Farrar Adid was. And so the plan was to meet him at the front of the embassy. And now the embassy compound security, whatever it was, 30 acres square, was run by the UN. The US actually only owned a building on there, the old USAID building or USIS building. That was our embassy. It was sort of the building within. The ambassador's residence was the fast company. Platoon of 50 Marines lived in the ambassador's house. The ambassador lived in one of the buried connexes that we had there, you know, buried halfway in the ground and sand steps and sandbag steps to come up there. So we were at the front of the embassy one day. Uh, Pete went to the different gate. And I was at the Turkish gate and uh, wearing shorts and a combat vest, uh, not a combat, a photographer's vest. And I'm supposed to meet and a guy who's going to come in and talk to us about, you know, defecting basically from Mohammed Farah Adid's clan and stuff. But, you know, how do I identify this guy coming? Uh, I had to wear my American flag ID card. And I got to the gate and you got to picture this gate. It's sort of like uh, going to Mars in the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. There's all sorts of garbage going out there. There's people with guns left and right. When all the locals that came to the embassy or came to the UN and get paid and do business, they dropped off their five or six guys in a car, kids with AK-47s, and all these people just hung out by the front gate until the guy left the compound. Then he would join his motorcade and get back. So there's a group of people. I mean, just always constantly hanging around the front there, trying to do business, trying to get in. I stepped out. I put my red flag uh, ID card on, you know, and, it, and I, I got to say the training took over. I just stood there and said, man, I am awfully exposed standing here outside the gate in the middle of Venusville with all these guys with guns. And I turned around, I looked at that gate and I said, well, if anything happens, I got to take two or three steps to the left or the right. I'm behind the gate and I'll be good. And in one of those moments, those traumatic moments where time slows down. I can recall the, the whole sequence of events and the thoughts going through my head. I had just finished that thought and a couple of shots rang out and I turned around because they hit behind me and I realized these were shots that were hitting the gate. I was standing in front. Somebody was shooting at me. I turned around. I took two or three steps. I dove behind the gate. There's a sandbag there. Got my pistol out. I was crawling on my hands and knees got behind the sandbags. I said, I'm going to get me some because people are shooting at me like, holy crap. And next thing I knew, the wall just kind of blew up next to me. Uh, 
And I found myself looking at the ground behind the sandbag, looking at my pistol, and then just picking my pistol up and going, wow, I am just severely outgunned here now. I, I put the pistol back in my holster, crawled over a little, get on the radio. I called for cowboy Pete Hargraves, and I said, I'm taking fire at the Turkish Gate. Can you get the Marines and come get me out of here and stuff like that? And the shooting, the Turkish troops are up on the top. They just put their guns, these big G3s. They just hold them up there. And they just started spraying and praying. At the people. And I'm thinking to myself, there's 150, 200 people outside the gate. What the hell are they shooting at? All those people standing out there. And I kind of peeked around the gate uh, between where the, the, uh, the gate came and the hinge and stuff. I could see nobody out there. But I saw this hole in the wall. And it was probably 18 inches just round and stuff like that. And come to realize they had fired an RPG at me. And it didn't fully detonate on me. It went through the wall and blew up the wall, whatever. It didn't detonate onto me, but it went through the wall. So I got knocked to the ground by all the, the cement and the rebar and stuff that was right there, the hole in the wall. My kind of holy crap moment. But then if you remember Rat Patrol, I, I hear Pete Hargrave saying, I'm coming down to the Turkish gate now. And there's Pete in the, you know, one of the RSO LADs. He comes down, he does a bootleg, throws open the door, Jimmy get in. I run out from behind the sandbags. I hop in. And as we start driving back onto the compound, I see these two beautiful Humvees filled with Marines hanging on the back there, helmets the wrong way. They got that automatic grenade shooter on top there. What is that, 40 mic mic or something like that? They're bouncing over the hills. They're coming to me, and I'm thinking Rat Patrol. I'm like, wow, this is great. This is so good to see these guys. Got me back to the compound, took care of me. We went to the, uh, the MASH hospital, stuff like that. I had lost some hearing in my ears for the rest of my life. But I was alive. I was there. Pete came and got me and stuff. It was it was one of those unique moments where you just kind of remember everything that was happening and how it went through. Like, again, you know, just seeing those Marines, seeing Pete, you know, it's seeing my pistol in front of me and saying, boy, I am just severely outgunned here. The consciousness that you get when the trauma hit in that shooting incident, it was just, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget it. And that was, you know, that was just one of those kinds of things that happened, you know, mortars landing every night and, Geez, I rescued the ambassador. He was sitting in a meeting with the, uh, the UN Admiral one day and I'm standing outside his door and the, uh, a mortar hits on the compound. And we got sporadic mortars, I, I wanna say nearly every day. And they'd fire two or three and then the uh, army Blackhawks would come up and stuff and provide cover and they'd, they'd go and hide. And they'd fire a 105 recoilless rifle at the embassy once in a while. So first mortar hits on the compound, not far from where we were. We were next to uh, the helicopter pad and stuff. So I'm like, oh, the first one hits. I drop to my knees really quick. I knock on the door to the, the uh, Admiral's office where the ambassador is. And the UN security guard is standing up next to me. And he's like, what are you doing? I go, oh, we got to go. Because, you know, mortars, we got to go evacuate to one of the uh, hard points and stuff like that. And they go, well, they usually just shoot two or three. And by now the door is open. And I'm, I'm gesturing to the ambassador. We got to go. We got to go. And the UN guy is like, well, they just shoot two or three and then the helicopters go up and they stop. So we should be okay in a couple of minutes. And I kind of just looked at him like, we should be okay. I, I, you know, we should be okay in the middle of a mortar attack. We should be okay. This one hit somewhere out near the, near the airfield. It wasn't that far away. I said, how about we just go hide? I look at the ambassador. How about we just go to the hard building until the mortar stop and the helicopters are up, you know, we'll be safe. And they're like, yeah, you know, that's not a bad idea. And so the admiral and stuff and the secretary and the UN security guard looking at me like, so we're walking and we're walking back kind of slow, you know, and I'm thinking, let's, let's go, let's go. I'm almost, you know, want to go. And sure enough, another mortar hits right on the other side of the helicopter. 
area and the other side of the uh, connex box is where we were. And I just knocked down the security guard. I knocked down the secretary. I hit the admiral. I grabbed the ambassador, got him by the belt loop, gave him the wedgie, got on the top and just started yelling, go, 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 go on my tiptoes. I'm knocking everybody off. Like, go, 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 get them in the building. We get in the building. I'm a little excited now. I'm going, you people are walking. You're in the middle of a border attack and you people are walking. And I'm, and he's like, all right, calm down, Jimmy. I'm like, calm down. I said, we almost got killed. You know, Holy crap. And you people are walking and, you know, okay, relax. I'm like, relaxing. But when we went back to that damn admiral's office and the side of his office was peppered with shrapnel from the mortar that had come through the connect, not the connect, the construction trailer and peppered his uh, four drawer uh, bar lock safe with uh, shrapnel and stuff like that. So, Hey, that wasn't a, a little thing to get his ass out of there. Like, Save his life? Yeah, I, I think we did. Well, the RSO puts me in for a valor award. Now, this is after the ambush. This is after the saving the ambassador and the admiral out of there. And the ambassador downgrades the award to a Franklin Award. $200, not a valor award. Because you're just doing your job kind of thing. And I mean, I'm like, really? Just doing your job? Okay. Yeah, that's fine. I'm, al- I'm happy I'm alive. I don't tell my family about what's going on and stuff like that. And in the end, I, uh, everyone that went to Somalia, part of the DS team, ended up getting a group Valor Award. You know, okay, so that, that was good. But Pete and I know that the shit was going on there, hitting the fan every night and stuff like that. And eventually we, let, we left. Uh, the day after the Black Hawk down raid, the raid on Bakara Market, who uh, the 17 guys uh, died you know, overnight fighting and stuff. Uh, we went out to the airport and we were meeting with some of the people that from the, uh, the military, the ambassador. And of course, I'm there as his bodyguard and we're in one of the rooms and stuff. And so he says, well, I got to go back. We're going to you know, look at things and reevaluate our, our situation here and stuff. So we went back and we packed up our clothes. And since my TDY was already extended, I think I was there 65 or 66 days of a two month TDY uh, waiting for new NIFO guys to come in there. They held them up in Nairobi. So I left that night on a, on a DC-3 with the ambassador. I mean, went back to Nairobi, had some consultations. And of course, the next day, I mean, 24 hours after this raid, I'm with the RSO, Mike Eicher. We're out on a golf course. I got a guy handing me tea with white, white cup, and he's got a napkin on there. And there's an elephant and a giraffe in the distance walking along the golf course. And I'm like, wow, yesterday we were ducking from mortars and there was machine gun fire and stuff. And today... I'm out playing golf in Nairobi. What, a, what an amazing time it is to be in DS and stuff. And then we took a flight back and the ambassador got recalled. Charlie Chase and uh, Pete Hargrave stayed in, in Somalia. Uh, and eventually like a week later or so, I think they all evacuated out of there. We pulled our, our presence out and then the Marines and the Fast Company and the Army 10th Mountain and stuff all finally pulled up and got out of there. I think the two NIFO guys ended up staying in Nairobi for a little while, but we never went back to Somalia for 15 years after that. That's an only that was 93. That, that was brilliant in the career. That's an only NDS type story. Uh, there. Uh, so I know Pete Hargraves. Pete was the sack. Well, Pete became the sack in Houston when I got out there. And uh, I had dinner with him before he became the sack because one of my BSAC classmates was one of Pete's former Marine security guards. So there's a connection there. So we all became pretty tight. We'd have barbecue at his house and you know this is in houston and, and I, I believe pete was a texas guy uh he certainly certainly yeah. sound like it right <clears throat> uh but great guy actually we just connected on facebook recently uh pete and i so yeah and, and mortars thing about mortars you can't fight back against mortars you know you just gotta you can hope or you can prepare and, and do what you did and get to a hard hard spot uh, hard point so uh 
Good stuff. So you went back to New York and you had a couple other things going. Uh, I want to talk about Ramsey Yusuf a little bit. Um, you were part of that uh, investigation, it sounds like, that trial. And uh, could you tell us, tell the, view, the listeners a little bit about, well, who Ramsey Yusuf is, for those that might not know, and then, you know, what your role was? Yeah, Ramsey Yusuf uh, was really the mastermind of the 93, the first attack on the World Trade Center in February of 93. Uh, and, but he was a uh, well embedded in the terrorist uh, network for years and years later. Uh, he bombed the, uh, he, he put the plan together and got the trucks and uh, the truck and the, the team together and got the whole bomb delivered that day to the World Trade Center and then flew out the night of the bombing on a Pakistani airway flight. Uh, took a couple of weeks, months, I guess, maybe four months before we pretty much had him nailed down who he was. Looking back on things, he arrived in the country with a fake uh, Iraqi passport and with another guy named Ahmad Ajaj. And, you know, in one of those quirks of, of fate, immigration had one bed left that day. And so they put Ahmad Ajaj into lockup and uh, Ramzan Youssef was given one of those uh, desk appearance tickets, come back in 90 days for your asylum hearing. And of course, never shows back up again. And he's, he's in the wind. And of course, it's not his real name. Years later, uh, after the bombing, it was probably two years later or something like that, uh, they went back and they realized that he had come in. They had his, uh, his, his uh, name, his Iraqi passport, Abdul Basit. His name was, they went back there and they realized he came into another guy who was still in custody, Ahmad Ajaj. Well, they looked at all the stuff that the Ahmad Ajaj, they had an evidence when they confiscated from them. And it had not only Ramzi Yusuf's fingerprints on there, but it had some fingerprints on it from a cell in Northern Europe that bombed one of the trains there. Had they done fingerprints, they might've made connections to the, to the cell a little bit earlier. But nonetheless, he got away with that first World Trade Center bombing. And the plan there was to plant the, the truck down in the basement next to some of the supports. And the hope was that by damaging the supports in the base, that 110-story building would fall over and hit the other one and knock it down. There were 25,000 people that work in each building. I actually worked before DS in the, in the Trade Center as a security chief for one of the shifts. So I had responsibility for the whole complex, including the buildings. So about 25,000 people worked at each one of those buildings. Had one gone to the other, potentially 50,000 Americans and a, you know, the largest terrorist attack in the world would have happened. Uh, and just lucky the structure of Manhattan has only tall buildings downtown and midtown because they're anchored into the bedrock. And the anchoring into the bedrock, eight stories below the building is really what kept it because the building shook even in wind and, and you know, heavy rains and stuff like that. You could hear the building creaking and stuff. There's a natural give, like an airplane wing, a natural give when there's a stress on it. And it gave enough uh, when that bomb went off in the basement, blew a hole through three or four stories. So Ramza Youssef took off. And then I don't know if you know the story about how he was captured in Pakistan. Guy showed up at the an office of an embassy, at the home of an embassy employee and had a page from Newsweek in there. And then the Newsweek page was the reward, the new program DS had started, Rewards for Justice. It was a reward for Ramza Youssef, $2 million to turn him in. This guy had this piece of paper, went to an embassy employee who turned out not to be a State Department employee, but it was an employee of the embassy nonetheless, brought him into the embassy. They put him in the trunk of a car, brought him into the embassy, got an interview with the RSO and stuff like that. And he basically said, I know where this guy is and stuff like that. And you get walk-ins all the time. You don't know how much is in there, but he told the story about what was going on. 
So I think it was at the Donna Josepha apartments or something like that. But the RSO and the crew, the local Pakistanis, they do the raid. They smuggle the guy out of the airport. They put him someplace. They meet him with the Pakistani police. They lead him to the place. They run a raid. Uh, not Bill Miller. Maybe it was Bill Miller, who later became the director, uh, was in the RSO shop then. He went inside the building there and they arrested the people in the, in the apartment and he identified Ramsey Youssef. They arrest him. They bring him out to the airport and stuff. Of course, the FBI gets to arrest him, formally arrest under U.S. Uh, you know, statutes and stuff. And of course, they own the G4 Gulfstream. So they floated over to Pakistan. So they're there on the tarmac. They get to arrest him and say, you're under arrest by the United States government. So we always ate that in our croy. Well, you, you might have arrested him, but we brought him to your plane on the tarmac in, uh, in Pakistan. So, you know, don't be too big on me. We arrested Ramzi Youssef then. So Ramzi Youssef got put into custody and he came back to New York. And again, I was already on the, on the JTTF. And one of his other schemes that he, he got tried for was this thing called Operation Bojenka, not very well heard of, but it was his plan to blow up 10 airlines in the air at the same time over the Pacific. And he actually did a test run on a, Philipp on a Japan Airways flight. No, it was a Philippine Airways flight going to Japan. He, fl he flew uh, from the Philippines and made one stop in Cebu and then was en route to, uh, to Japan. Well, on the leg down to Cebu, he sat down in a certain seat. And then he got off the plane in Cebu and the plane continued on. And he had a little nitroglycerin that he had smuggled in in like a, uh, a pillbox, a uh, prescription pillbox. The cotton ball was soaked in nitroglycerin and he had a timer on there, a Casio watch timer. Maybe the Casio was the one that did. But he had a small timer. He set up a little bomb. He put it underneath the seat. And that blew up on the plane and killed a Japanese guy. Never found his body. He was basically blown out. Plane continued, turned around, did an emergency landing. Well, uh, as part of his trial for that bombing, we had the flight attendant who pictured him in a lineup and said, yeah, this is the guy that was sitting there before. He got off. He didn't get back on Cebu. His plane ticket was to Tokyo. But... He didn't get on the plane. So we set up a witness protection detail because the FBI didn't know how to do witness protection. They, you know, let's put him in a hotel or something like that. And we ended up putting him at a, a military base and doing some protection on him. And then we tried him for the bombing of the Japan, the Japan Airways flight or the Philippine Airways flight. Philippine Airways flight to Japan and the Royal Trade Center. And they found him guilty and sentenced him to life in prison out at Supermax. Uh, Joined Don John John Gotti and uh, Ted Kaczynski out Supermax. So we did that trial with them, and between working on getting witnesses from overseas and setting up detective detail and stuff like that, I got a nice award and recognition from the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office in Southern District. And I'm wondering if that was my first award. Yeah, there's a picture on the wall. Can't see uh, there. Uh, Bob Muller of uh, Bob Muller fame. And that was, uh, I want to say 96, 97. And the same time I said the, uh, the plane went down, the TWA went down, and uh, the FBI assistant director had a uh, friend on the plane. I know people always said that was the reason we were investigating it, but there, there was talk about a missile and how it got shot down. And I did, you know, Dozens and dozens of interviews with people in uh, that were out on the boats that day. People that were in their uh, in their backyards and said they saw this streak of lightning. Somebody that said, "Oh, I got a picture of it in the back of my house." Here's the missile going up and stuff. And we went and interviewed her. 
Of course, she lives on the North Shore of Long Island. She's 20 miles away from it. The back deck of her house, we took the pictures, looking north towards Connecticut. The streak of light on the blight on the plane is on the uh, on the negative in the film is just a streak on the negative. When we got the original negative and stuff, we confirmed that. But we were like, you know, lady, your house doesn't even look towards the South Shore of Long Island where the plane went down. So it's not a picture. We'll talk to you and you know we'll take the picture and stuff. But you know she had our moment of fame by calling the local PD and uh, and saying, oh, I got a picture of the missile attacking the plane and stuff like that. But it wasn't. It was the plane that came, it was the uh, the fuel streaming down on fire coming down, made it look like it was a, uh, a missile. Plus it, but the plane was already at 10,000, 12,000 feet and there were no boats around it and stuff. We got radar pictures from all the airports. Uh, we had uh, Coast Guard has tracking of boats and stuff in the area and stuff. So all those leads didn't pan out. There was a uh, somebody walking on a beach in New Jersey that came up with a receipt for a missile and handed it into the local uh, cops and stuff and called the press and stuff like that. Like, Here, here's a receipt from a missile. This must have been the missile that was on the boat. And someone else said, oh, God. And there's a Navy guided missile uh, cruiser that was just nearby, you know, just further down on the Jersey Shore. So maybe that's the one that fired the missile and stuff. So literally before this boat gets the dock in Norfolk, the FBI calls the military and says, hold everybody on the boat. Nobody gets off. We got to inventory the missile. Uh, inventory on the plane. You got to talk to your people, make sure nothing happens. And blah, blah. This boat was 185 miles away. You know, none of the missiles can reach right there. Uh, but sure enough, the boat got held up. They interviewed the people. They did all this stuff. And then someone points out, you know, there's this little place called Earl Naval Weapons Station on the Jersey Shore that loads U.S. military munitions onto Navy boats before they go back overseas to other places. So maybe it came from there. Sure enough, by the time the uh, was it the, the Navy, the NCIS guys tracked that receipt back. The missile was still in inventory. The serial number and stuff was still in inventory on a different ship somewhere. So it hadn't been fired. Again, remember I told you there was a military operating area near that TWA 800. So uh, played all those leads out. That brought us to like 96, 97, I guess, in my career. And my first overseas off to Bosnia. Yeah, that's my next question. Tell us about that critical threat. That's a couple of years after the the war had ended, right? And uh, what was your role? Yeah, what kind just, of threats were you facing? And primary it was duties. Just after the war had ended, uh, and that was a sectarian war, so uh, the people were pretty pissed at other people there, and uh, really don't understand the uh, the degree of the uh, of the ethnic fighting and cleansing went on there, and of course. We had no flights when we first got there into Sarajevo. So I moved into a into the old embassy building. I'll get the, I'll get the flights there. Uh, we, we had to fly into Croatia. And then when the embassy would send a motorcade up to pick us up, rotate out the old guys that were doing the you know ARSOs and stuff and bring the new ones. And we'd drive back from Zagreb. And it was like a six-hour drive on a highway in, in Croatia, which was relatively untouched. But as soon as you crossed into Bosnia, there were bombed out buildings and pockmarked buildings and street signs are down and piles of rubble everywhere and burnt out cars and houses. And you're like, wow, war zone, you know, one of those, you know, no doubt in your mind, you're in a war zone. And we got down there and I moved into a uh, police station. Uh, I was downstairs with uh, John DiCarlo was the RSO, Patty O'Boyle who passed away a, a few years ago. And we kind of lived downstairs in the police station on the ground floor in a cell for the first couple of weeks until they had houses ready for us to move out into houses that they prepared for us. 
you know, generators and it had a washing machine and it had beds and stuff because they didn't have an inventory in Sarajevo. Sarajevo had been under siege for years and years. So the place was kind of screwed, you know, rat fucked here and there uh, for fighting all around there. And uh, despite the fact that they had the Olympics there in 84 and you could be in town and see the, the, uh, the ski lifts coming into town and stuff, they, but they were all blown up and dangling by cables and the, the town that had been under siege, there were trenches at, all around the city and there were mines everywhere. Uh, that was a big thing. I became the ARSO that gave all the welcome briefs to everyone that came TDY and stuff. And as part of it, I discussed issues and the two-car policy. You couldn't go anywhere outside of Sarajevo unless you were in two-car. One had to be an armored car. You had to have a comms plan, a communications plan if you were leaving and stuff. And we had to know where you were going. And your trips had to be approved by the RSO and stuff. Typical critical threat kind of stuff. But in Sarajevo, no cars and stuff. So we had to all have radios and we had a GSO driver that pick people up and stuff, which became quite humorous. Some nights when, you know, you want to go out drinking with a, with a buddy or something like that, you know, this is Tiger pick me up at my residence and take me to, uh, you know, what we called Irish, which was the Dublin bar, the Irish bar. You know, there were, there were three restaurants that operated in the whole city and there were two bars. So everyone, all the Westerners and the UN people all went to these same places, you know, and it was just a target rich environment. If you want to do a car bomb there or shoot up and affect the international community, everyone knew it, but there was no other place to go. So we moved out of the police station. We got our apartments and stuff. Uh, I was doing, like I said, the, uh, the welcome briefs to everybody. And I would drop this map in front of them. And I'd say, okay, here's Sarajevo, all these little dots. And there were a lot of little dots surrounding the city are where landmines are, uh, landmine fields and these little yellow things that looked like starbursts were explosions and this is where it's happened. And I'd, I'd say, okay, here's your house and there's a minefield right behind your house. So don't go out of your house and walk around the back and you know, don't go explore the, uh, the ski lift chairs and uh, don't go explore the, uh, the trenches all around the city and stuff because they had booby trapped. And, and, and literally we had a mine action team that was working with the UN that would constantly come and give us a new map. And there'd be more dots on it. And we found more mines here and stuff. And then we figured out from the locals that the locals sometimes would find the mines and then they would bring them to like near bridges and stuff. Uh, there was a river that went through Sarajevo with a scene of the famous uh, Franz Josefa bridge where the Serb guy killed, uh, was the emperor that started World War I that happened in Sarajevo. <laughs> uh, a crazy ethnic killing. Uh, but the locals would take the landmines and they would just drop them in the water just trying to get rid of them because there was no disposals and stuff like that. And Sometimes when the rivers weren't running, you would see the landmines at the bottom of the place there. So the, the locals would always constantly tell you, oh, there were landmines here. I found one behind my house. So the mine action committee would note it, put it down on a GPS and say, okay, there's a landmine here. Well, you got to demine that at some point and stuff. And we would tell people, you know, don't go here, don't go there. And of course we had two incidents where somebody showed up one day and brought like an RPG to the embassy. And we had literally just moved into a temporary embassy. I was working for like four or five months to go stand up a Marine detachment. And I succeeded in the end, but it took, took a while. But sure enough, one day, guy just shows up on an RPG round to the front. And he's like, you know, uh, my, my landlord gave me this, thinks it might be an explosive and it might be loud. It was like, holy mackerel, you know, you put it down, step away, hit the emergency buzzer, get everyone away from the front, talk to the local guards. Don't let anyone come up the driveway to the embassy until we got, you know, an EOD team from uh, S-Force, the equalization force out at the army base on the edge of town near uh, 
you know, the Sarajevo airport, I got an EOD team to come in there and say, yeah, it's an RPG round, but it's unexploded. It's still, you know, still active, but you got to put it in there and get the firing uh, pin and stuff for the whole thing. So, you know, I remember getting yelled at by the ambassador. Don't you tell people not to bring explosives to the embassy? And I was like, no, sir. We never actually said that to people. We just told them there were mines and explosives all around the city. We never told them that. Well, you start telling people. And sure enough, you know, we had a Marine detachment there and someone came up one day and bought a landmine with them. A friggin' working landmine. But the guards down at the front stopped them. And they what is that? Well, it might be an explosive. We're going to bring it in to the Marines and show the Marines like them. Tell me stuff like that. And the local guard called the Marine. Marine hits the hits the buzzer again. And, you know, you're trying to figure out from the RSO shop. You're running around. What's happening? What's going on? Gunshots. Well, someone bought a landmine to the front of the embassy, you know, and the DCM just looking at me. You're telling people not to bring explosives to the embassy, right? You're like, yes, sir. We're telling people not to bring explosives to the embassy. We tell everybody that comes here. If you find an explosive, don't bring it to the embassy. And yet this is the second time, Jim. And you're like, yes, sir. I, I, I don't know what happened. What goes to uh yeah great that's, times uh that's some things you, uh, you, would, you, would, you would think you wouldn't have to tell people uh this, that happened recently in uh in israel there was a really recent like a couple months ago where uh, a, a a family was touring and they picked up some unexploded ordnance and put it in their in their uh suitcase and they ended up evacuating the airport because and they had no there were no malicious intent they just picked it up and wanted to take it with them yeah, so, right. so they can't make these things up sometimes Souvenirs. Yeah, I'm sorry. I cut you off. Go ahead, please. No, no. It, it, matter of fact, the uh, John DiCarlo was my RSO, and he had just come out of uh, Baghdad. He was the RSO in Baghdad when the war was over there, and he had been back to the department consulting and stuff. He came over and he took it. You know, he took it in into himself. Make sure I I learned to be an RSO. He said, "I'll teach you everything you need to know to be an RSO." Great thing. Well, DS and in their infinite wisdom rewards him from coming out of Baghdad. And then go to Bosnia, another critical threat. And they send them down to, of all places, in 1998, Dar es Salaam. Oof. And if you remember timeline, mm -hmm. August 8th, 1998. John DiCarlo is the RSO down in Dar es Salaam. Uh, but again, he, he's a great RSO. He walked around his embassy and went up on the roof and walked around and stopped at a few minutes and watched that front gate. He told me this later on. I'll tell you about the bombing investigation. But he noticed that his guards... We're not operating the Sally port, like a real Sally port. They would open one gate up. They'd open the other gate. Truck would just drive onto the compound, drive off the compound. So he went downstairs and he talked to his guards and said, this is what a Sally port is. Just like the doors, you open one gate, you bring the truck in, you search it and stuff like that. You close the door, you open the other one so that cars can come to the compound. And this is one of the first embassies that had the Sally ports. Uh, after the Jeddah bombing, was it the Jeddah attack on the compound where the guys drove in and they jammed the anti-vehicle barrier. They jammed it in the position. They were able to run on the compound and assault the compound where we started with the lessons learned that I helped write that PII report. We did that lessons learned about putting vehicle sally ports at great expense, but deep pockets America at great expense, putting that vehicle sally port. So down in Dar es Salaam, on the day of the bombing, uh, the truck comes and it comes out there and they're watching. And as the gate opens, they rush the truck up there, figuring they're going to be able to drive right on the compound. But the uh, water truck that delivered water to the embassy was in there and coming out. And they basically went nose to nose and started arguing. The guards trying to figure out what's going on. And the bad guy just pressed the button and blew it up, blew the water tanker up in, over the wall into the embassy, which was an old Israeli embassy building. So it was pretty well fortified and left the truck there. And there's an infamous picture of the water truck up against the building there. 
Well, John DiCarlo talking to the guards had resolved that issue and, and prevented the truck from coming onto the compound and blowing up next to the building. John DiCarlo was in post one, giving the Marine a bathroom break when the bomb went off and he got tossed around and stuff. They only lost 11 people in, at the, uh, mostly outside on the visa line, got killed and two guards. Uh, and everyone else just got tossed around the building and stuff. But great story to be an RSO and I'll never forget him, uh, John for our time in Somalia and stuff. But he was RSO in Dar es Salaam. His peaceful tour got blown up about two weeks after he arrived. And you, when you left uh, Bosnia, uh, Sarajevo, Sarajevo, you went to uh, JTTF, right? And um, uh, I actually and came back to. Oh, to NIFO. Yeah, okay, I'm sorry. Yep. Yeah, I went back to NIFO, and I wasn't intended to go to JTTF. I was going to go into the PL unit and take over the airport resident agency again. I was, I was doing a New York thing, go overseas for a period, come back after a year, and and you know reset your clock and do a couple of years. But uh, I got back on like August sixth. And the bombing was August 7th. And the sack of New York was Pat Kelly, who had been the sack in had been the RSO in Nairobi until just two weeks, three weeks before. Paul Peterson was the RSO there in Nairobi when he got attacked on that day, but she had just been there. And so she uh, she heard I was on JTTF and she asked me to go back and work the JTTF. Basically, she said, be my spy there. Let me know what the hell's going on out there and, and tell me. And, and I did. I mean, she was a she was a great boss. I had fights with her every once in a while, and we both agreed to disagree to this day. I'm still friends with her. Uh, but I, I, you know, I went back to work and I did the embassy bombing. I got on with the teams and stuff. We ended up, I probably spent, I think I, I listed it somewhere, more than 11 months TDY in the next three years in Nairobi and in Dar es Salaam doing the bombing investigation, interviewing people again and again and searching for evidence and phone records and stuff. We'd go for four weeks and we'd come back for, you know, two months and we build up a list of things we needed to do and go back there. And, and in that place, we had uh, some people that had done the bombing that got captured. Uh, Alawali uh, went to Pakistan and they captured him and there was another guy they caught there. So it was really a good help to get that bombing investigation kickstarted and get back. In, in Nairobi, the guy arrived and they had done surveillance on the embassy. So another thing to add to the lessons learned later about you know, why embassies might set up surveillance detection programs was because of this. They had surveilled the embassy and they saw that you could basically just drive the wrong way into this parking lot and get right next to the gate that goes down the ramp to underneath the embassy. And that was their plan to do that. Uh, so they drove in the wrong way. Uh, and when uh, they got stopped by the drop bar, which of course only had, you know, a pin in it, holding that drop bar down. And it wasn't an anti-ram drop bar, but it was a drop bar. So they kind of stopped and they were yelling at the guard. The guard was trying to make a radio call to the Marine and stuff like that. And of course, they share the channel with the admin and the GSO. So there's radio chatter on cars and pickups and he can't get through. Uh, one of the guys gets out of the, uh, the bombing truck. He throws a small bomb, a hand grenade at the, uh, at the guard. That blows up. And that loud bang at the same time that there's sort of protests going on at the, the railway station, which was across from the embassy. And there's thousands of people out on the street by the railway station right there. That hand grenade goes off and everybody in the called the Ufunde building, which was a 15 to 16 story building next to the embassy. And everyone at the embassy, here's the loud boom. And they all go to the window and plaster their face up and go look. And a few seconds later, the guy pressed the button, truck with about 1200 pounds of TNT, blows up and breaks the window, drops one of the buildings right there, 
blows everything out of the embassy and causes havoc. 222 people killed in Nairobi, including the building collapsed people that were inside there, and over 5,000 wounded because all those people were standing by the train station waiting to get on the buses and stuff like that out on the street and just decimated. Buses were blown through with glass and stuff. Uh, they found the uh, the vent, another, you know, another DS training thing to work on these post-blast why RSOs need to know. We found the vent, we, the JTTF found the vent about a half a mile away, tracked back the truck and stuff. And then we learned a lot more about the cell by arresting the one guy who was injured at the airport, at the uh, hospital, and then getting the other guy in Pakistan who had flown out. They were stopped in Pakistan. They were arrested. They brought him back and they rented him back to the States. So we had some people and we put together a really good plan about how the bombing had come together and we had people in custody. So we spent three years working that investigation and trial. And I got put on part of the team towards the end, the last seven or eight months, uh, being I was a DS guy and knew the overseas operations, uh, put together the witness protection plan, WITSEC plan, the Bureau calls it, but basically a witness protection plan to bring over the 130 witnesses at a Nairobi and Kampala and Dar es Salaam, bring them all to New York for the trial. So, you know, bringing in people that, you know, have $20 a month in income and then suddenly saying, do you have a passport? Well, we got we to gotta buy them passports. We got to get the Kenyans and the Tanzanians to issue them passports. So we got to take their pictures and fill out forms and do the fingerprints and get them passports. And then we got to get visas. And of course, the State Department does, you know, we don't give visas to people, you know, for this kind of thing. So we had to go through getting them special paroles. And then a parole letter for every single person, and then you know vetting the fingerprints again with the with the IC, and then gathering these people up when the trial started in the summer of uh, summer of 9/11. Uh, trial started, I think, in early May, and we had to sort of sequence these people over there. So we had the detectives from Nairobi and Dar who were helping us in the case act as shepherds. And I actually have a polo shirt somewhere called Shepherds of East Africa Tour Group. Uncle Sam's Tours, it says Shepherds of East Africa Travel Group which was sort of our joke about getting these people and shepherding like, like, a, like herding kittens kind of thing, bringing these people and getting them into Nairobi, getting them all ready to get on a plane to fly, giving them some per diem money. And they want to, you know, people are showing up and they don't, they have two shirts and two pair of pants and stuff and eight rolls of toilet paper in their suitcase. And you're like, what's with the toilet paper? Well, you know, I don't know if they have toilet paper. We're like, yeah, we have toilet paper. And, you know, why don't we take you down to the, uh, the flea market and buy us some more clothes and buy you a bag because they showed up with plastic shopping bags and all their clothes. And it was like, you need luggage. And it was, it was handholding to get these people over there. And we brought, like I said, we brought the Nairobi and the Dar es Salaam cops over with groups of FBI and NYPD detectives that we bring them over groups of eight or 10 at a time. And we fly them on the plane to Amsterdam. So we had to have a meeting in Amsterdam, great beer, got piss tested for the only time in my career when I got back from Amsterdam, surprise, surprise. Uh, and so did the two detectives that were with me uh, out there. But we had this witness train set up and we bring the detectives over from Kenya and Dar es Salaam and we gave them New York per diem, which at the time was like $57 a day. And this was cops that were making $30 a month, $27 a month. And we brought them to New York and we were buying their loyalty. They would get $57 a day. You know, you heard stories about a guy, I bought a car and my brother drives it. It's a taxi. And another guy, you know, I bought a new corrugated tin and put a roof on my building, my house and stuff. So I finally have a solid roof and stuff like amazing transformation of us basically using them to keep hurting these, these kittens. And we had this witness train and everything went good. We, we only lost one person for a couple of days. 
you know, it wasn't DHS at the time, but it was the immigration guys and customs guys that were on the, the task force. They were like, you know, what are we, what's acceptable losses? If we lose 20 or 30 people out of 130 that were sconed in the, in the United States, but we lost one guy and, and he said to somebody, protective detail we had set up at the hotel. And again, the bureau, their idea of protective detail, you know, three guys sitting in a hotel room and the witness in the room next door. And, you know, the witness is supposed to tell us when he goes out, you know, I'm like, you know, we need cameras over here and, you know, sound in the hallway and a camera on the stairwell and stuff like that. You really can't protect them if you're all in the room and you're all watching TV. So I pissed off a lot of people when I got the cameras put up there. And then I had the camera monitors put on top of the TV set in the hotel room. So, you know, you could see the hallway, you know, you, everyone's watching the baseball game and you turn around and, you know, the monitors are on the other side of the room. I'm like, yeah, that's not working for me guys. But so again, helping the, helping the bureau, but, uh, our last group of witnesses that was there, we offered to take them up to the World Trade Center. It was a stop on our on our journey of New York. We took them around and we fed them food and we took them to like a you know an all-you-can-eat deli for you know three ninety nine a pound because these people were 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 taking all the food from the breakfast at the hotel, the free food, and they were taking all that food and putting it in their bags and taking it back. This will be for lunch and this will be for dinner. And we were like. You know, we're going to buy you lunch when you get to the U.S. Attorney's Office and you do the pre-interview in case you testify today or tomorrow. We'll buy you lunch. And if you're there after five o'clock, we'll buy you dinner, too. So you really don't need to steal all the food from the breakfast buffet at the hotel, this little sideway hotel. We had we reached them at a house and home. But we took we, we were taking everyone to the Royal Trade Center, 110th floor, the observation deck and stuff. And that last group of people said, no, they wanted to go shopping or something like that. So we took them to Chinatown and walked them around and stuff like that. And it was only a month later when 9-11 happened and we were waiting for our verdicts, which we got. We were waiting for sentencing. Uh, we got guilty of all our guys. Front page of the, of the newspaper that day, I think it's 302 times guilty. Uh, or our four defendants are on there, uh, all found guilty of the bombing conspiracy. So they all got sent. They all got sentenced after 9/11. So of course, 9/11 interferes with the whole thing. We found the guilty pleas, and we were all kind of taking vacation and stuff for a week. And we all came back, and you know, September 11th happened. Like I said, we we had just finished the embassy bombing trials, uh, and the uh, people were taking time off and stuff like that. And my daughter started school on the morning of 9/11th uh, preschool. So I went in to work late that day, and. Walked my daughter two blocks to her preschool day, her first day of school and stuff. And then, uh, so I was heading into the office late, listening to uh, Howard Stern on the radio, uh, love him or hate him. And I was driving in and he said, oh, we got some report of some plane that hit the World Trade Center or something like that. And, you know, you look out the window, it was one of those rare, beautiful blue sky days, clear as anything. And I was like, wow. That is hard. I, I, I had a private pilot's license a long time ago, and I'm going, that's hard to hit the World Trade Center. Even if you're flying low, there's no clouds. So there's no, sometimes the observation deck in the World Trade Center will be hidden in clouds. It would be a low deck, overcast and stuff. And you could be up in the World Trade Center observation deck and not be able to see anything like the Sears Tower, just in, in clouds. But I'm looking at the World Trade Center and the road turns at a certain point. I look and I can say, wow, I see smoke coming in. And I'm like, it's an absolutely beautiful day. The only way this would have happened is if a plane tried to go between the buildings and, you know, be a hot dog or something like that, a show off and must have hit the building and stuff like that. 
And then uh, listening to the radio, I went to the news channel and stuff. And I was maybe four miles away from work or so. I got a phone call from one of my detectives and he says, hey, we're deploying out the World Trade Center. How far away are you? I'm going, I'm five minutes, 10 minutes away. I'm just over the Brooklyn Bridge, Manhattan Bridge, whatever. I said, I'll be there. He says, all right, I'll meet you down on the street in front of 290 Broadway, the JTDF building with your, uh, your go case. And I go, okay, on away. So I uh, started speeding up a little bit and then a police car went past me with lights and siren on. So I threw my blue light onto the dashboard, turned my siren on, got in behind him, started making better time going around people running lights and stuff. And I got up onto the Manhattan Bridge and we were halfway over the Manhattan Bridge. And that's when the second plane hit the World Trade Center and threw out all the orange and black smoke and went through and went out there. And the cop in front of me slammed his brakes on and I slammed my brakes on and I rear-ended him and we both got out of the car and we just kind of looked at you. Okay. Yeah. We looked at the Trade Center and it was like, holy crap. You know, both buildings are on fire now. What the hell was that? And I was like, yeah, I heard a plane hit. He goes, yeah, you okay? And I was like, yep. Got back in our cars and we just took off. Not a lot of dumb it damage to the GOV, not that it mattered much that day. So I ran down a couple more blocks, got out of the car, met my detective and the street filled, streets were filled with people. It looked like, I wanna say it was like the, the Yankee World Series win parade. There were thousands of people in the street. They were very calm and orderly, but they were all flow and counter flow from the roads going down and us going down to the building. And I only, I've only told this story maybe three or four times in my life and stuff about 9-11 because it was, a pretty traumatic day, but we worked our way over to uh, the base of the Trade Center and we being the JTTF team and stuff. And this is the guys like with me, we were working bin Laden and the embassy bombing and stuff for a year. We're all looking at each other going, yeah, this is definitely a terrorist attack. This is planes hitting. This could have been like the Operation Bojinka that Ramsey Youssef wanted to do when he wanted to uh, fly the blow all the American planes up at once. And someone said this was in a book one time. They flew a plane into the into the White House, a Jack Ryan book, where they flew the plane into the White House. They're like, yeah, clearly they're doing this and stuff. So we were thinking terrorism right away. But there was an ASAC there from the FBI, and he's gathering us all up. And we're facing him like I'm facing you. There's a group of 10 or 12 of us right here. And we're facing him, and he's got his back to the Trade Center. We're all kind of watching, and we're on uh, VC Street, where the post office was. And this is where people started jumping out of the buildings. and, and Somebody pointed it out and we're all kind of looking and jumping and making a, a terrible splat sound when they hit the ground. It's a boom with loud bang. And you realize what it was and you're like, holy crap. And someone said something to the ASAP, Kenny Maxwell. Kenny, there are people jumping out there. He's like, oh yeah, we don't need to see this. And he's trying to give us instructions. I want a team to deploy over here. I want a team to deploy over here. Look for cameras, look for witnesses. Go stand by the jet engine that's right there. Go stand by the landing gear that's over there. I mean, there were airplane parts on the street and the buildings were all burning and stuff. And we realized this is all evidence. So it's a huge crime scene. That's what he's, that's what the FBI ASAC is saying, the crime scene, bro. So he moved us around the corner so we don't see what's going on with people jumping out of the building. And that's just when uh, the first building came down. And at first we just, you see it coming down and it's surreal and it's, it's like the Mogadishu thing again. You're thinking, oh my God, this is not happening. The building's coming down. I worked in the buildings. I knew how many people were in the buildings and stuff. It was fully occupied and stuff. I told the Kenny Maxwell that day, I said, there's 25,000 people in each building. And their initial estimate was 25,000 people in each building. And I'm not saying to myself, I told Kenny Maxwell that, but we don't know how many people were actually in the buildings. I just knew that 25,000 worked in each tower and that made it into initial reporting. But we ran around the building and some people ran down into the subway stops. Others like just ran and we eventually we were running and the cloud of smoke came through the corridors, comes around the building and just catches you. 
and you're you're in you can't see shit but you know people around there and you're talking to each other hey you know i was with the, one of the detectives bobby and this other guy gary fitzgerald and so hey let's let's go inside here and, and we crawled on the sidewalk into a deli that had a glass door and we opened the deli and everyone starts screaming close the door because all the shit's coming in there and it's haze and it's dust and you know it's pulverized concrete and it's debris you know everything that's everything that's in your office in front of you the calendars the printers the this rebar and stuff, all that crap is now down and pulverized and it's in a mess. And we were in there for a minute and people were pouring water onto their faces and stuff. And Gary's like, hey, there are people outside there. Let's go get them. So we formed this little human chain of people out the front door of the deli onto the street there. And as people were crawling by, literally crawling and, and walking and stuff, we started calling out, you hear my voice, come to my voice and stuff. And we grabbed some people. We said, okay, you know, follow us in this human chain of people and just follow them down and go into the deli. There's water. There's stuff like that. It took probably 20 minutes, 25 minutes before the, the dust had settled enough where you could really start to see stuff. But people were coming out covered in dust. They were on their hands and knees. I had dust all over me. Gary did and stuff too. And eventually it was like, you know, we need to go find the rest of the bureau folks and what we're going to do there. And so we went back up to near the post office where we had started running from looking and we found some of the bureau people and they were like, yeah, this is going to be bigger than, than we can imagine as a crime scene and stuff. He said, so uh, let, let's all gather our people, make sure we have everything we need here. And when we'll just start closing down some of the streets around the trade center, just go and only first responders inside, get people out, let the, the ambulance and stuff come in there. So me and Gary went over and helped somebody that was badly injured on their head. And we walked them over to an ambulance and stuff. And basically we were doing that. We were trying to lock down the scene and get people out of there. People that were walking down to help, we we're all yelling at them and turning around. No, get out of here. This is a crime scene. Get out of here. Just go. And then all the cops that were there, the firemen are yelling around, hey, where are the people? You seen anybody from Engine 311 or something like that? You're like, you know, I, I, I haven't seen anybody. I saw one cop, an emergency services cop, who crawled out from underneath a fire truck. And uh, I, I knew the guy, and I was like, holy mackerel. And the stick was coming down on the street. He dove under the fire truck for protection. He could have got crushed, but he didn't. And then we were there for that. And then uh, the second building came down, whatever, half an hour Half an hour later, the second building came down. We weren't close to that one, but still the same thing. The, the cloud of dust came down there and just chased us. And we ran ahead of that and we met up with a, a bureau supervisor. And he goes, word is we're all gathering up by uh, the Southern District Attorney Office. And you know, we'll gather up there. Don't go back to the FBI offices at 26 Fed and 290, the buildings next to him. And you know, we we're like, well, we were told to seal off the buildings and stuff. He said, no, every cop in New York is coming into the city right now. They'll lock off lower Manhattan. They're closing things down. The subway lines are closed, everything else. And they're closing New York. And we kind of did with that. So we did up going back to the Southern District for a short period. And the boss said, no, no, I went back to the JTTF offices. So another good story out of that. Uh, I can only remember the guy's name. I'm, I'm back in the uh, command center, and now we're trying to pull the, uh, the manifests for everyone that's on the plane. And this is 11 o'clock, 11.30 in the morning now, two hours after the buildings came down, the attack started and stuff. And uh, a detective comes in there, Joey Cordero, NYPD. He goes, hey, some guy on the street gave me this passport. It's a Saudi passport. Open it up. We, we figured out in short order, it's a passport for one of the hijackers who was on the plane. Guy saw a sorting passport, picked it up, gave it to a detective who happened to be on the task force. He gave it to any other detective that would have went in inventory. We would have found it for years, but he gave us that passport. Took upstairs, start running that, find the visa for him, 
five month plane he arrived in the country on and stuff. We start pulling two and two together. Probably within an hour, we, and I think probably all around the country, we had figured out almost everyone that had been part of the 9-11 attack. And as the cop said, it's a murder plot. Murder's all dead. Now we just got to figure out who paid them, who supported them and stuff like that. But we had put the ties all together uh, of the bad guys. You know, we put them on planes. They flew together. They were on this plane, got the manifest of that, tied guy from one plane into another plane, you know, bad guy and stuff, put a whole bunch of stuff together. Uh, and I, I think I worked 24 or 30 hours straight. I called my family and said I'm alive. I called my uh, my wife. I said, call my mom and everybody else. Tell them I'm, I'm alive and stuff. I didn't tell them what happened that day. Uh, went home. I got a change of clothes and stuff. They were canceling the UN General Assembly because that was, you know, 9-11. It was happening a couple days later. New York already, uh, NIFO already had a block of homes, uh, hotels uh, up there for UNGA, which was canceled. So they said, just stay in the city. So went home, got some clothes, change of clothes. I still have my vest that I was wearing that day that has 9-11 dust on it with me. Uh, so I worked that case. Uh, you know, like I said, we, we found most of the people. We started putting the ties together. And then you had to just build back things. We found out a couple of days later, one of the bad guys, for instance, Khalid Al-Madar, uh, got pulled over by the police for a speeding ticket and was let go and stuff. And, you know, you find this out later. But uh we had rotated some people through the uh, JTTF at that time because the embassy trial was done. And it was a brand new FBI agent that had come onto the squad who got a lead that said, hey, this guy who has a U.S. visa to come to the United States and was associated with this infamous Malaysia meeting of terrorists that the CIA surveilled for the FBI. We asked him to, to get this meeting and we identified people there. Well, one of the guys they identified, Khalid Al-Midar, had a U.S. visa. Well, I'm on the task force and I worked closely with the CIA station, the Alex station all the time. So the CIA guys over there knew me and they didn't tell me that this guy had come into the country. We assigned it to a new Intel agent and he pulled up his customs form that said he was going to the Sheridan in New York. He sent a lead off to the FBI contact for Sheridan uh, hotels. Can you look and find out if this guy was staying in the city? So that was a missed lead. Had we known that he was part of the Malaysia meeting, we could have put a lookout on him into NCIC. And when they pulled his driver's license that day in Maryland, they might have just might have got the flag on him as a KST, known as suspected terrorist, and broken open one of the cells there. You know, I always look back at that as one of the things and I blame the CIA people. They, they testified that we had no information, but there was this old little conspiracy about the people in the Malaysia meeting. The CIA said they passed it off to the FBI and this FBI analyst said, well, we weren't allowed to tell the investigative team because of the thing called the Chinese wall, the intelligence wall, which, of course, when we were all up in the garage, the FBI garage, where the investigation focused in New York, we moved out of the FBI building and we had 500 investigators. We got 300 detectives and we had every agency in the world come there and we all cheered, literally were cheering when we heard the wall was down between terrorism and intelligence because of 9-11. And who is it? Uh, Jamie Gorlick, who ended up being on the 9-11 Commission, was the lady who was working at the National Security Committee that said you can't pass intelligence information to criminal investigators. She was the one that put the wall up. And then later she went on the 9-11 Commission and, and downplayed that whole sharing of intelligence. But all the people that worked the case knew we had we had two chances to stop that. One other thing that was a great story for a DS thing. Uh, maybe a month and a half or so into the investigation, 
uh, we finally got the original visa applications from all the bad guys. And you know, most of them was out of Saudi Arabia. Was it 17 of the 19 hijackers were Saudi? And we got their originals pulled back as part of evidence. And my detective friend is looking at this stuff at uh, one of the Al Gandhi uh, brothers, the muscle hijackers. Things that he goes, hey, who's Mo Shabab? He's like, who the hell's Mo Shabab? That name's not familiar to me. He's looking, he goes, it says on the visa application, I'm traveling with my friend Mo Shabab. Well, who the hell is Mo Shabab? You know, so I go back and I pull all the visa records for everyone named Mo Shabab the day before, the day after, the day of, of this visa application. And I find out on the same day as a guy named Mo Shabab, whatever, who, who applied for a visa the same day as one of our muscle hijackers. So well, where is this guy? We checked the records and never came into the state. So we send the lead back to the FBI legates in uh, Riyadh to go find Moshebob. Who the hell is Moshebob and why did he come in? Who's his friend? Does he know the terrorists and stuff? Well, it takes the, uh, the Saudis, I think I want to say about eight months. And then one day we got the call. Hey, they found Moshebob. They're interviewing him now in uh, Saudi Arabia. And sure enough, Moshebob turned out to be supposed to be one of the hijackers. And... He got his passport, he got his visa issued and stuff, went home, basically said to his mom and dad, I'm going to do jihad, I'm never coming back and say goodbye. And dad said, no, you're not. Took his passport, wouldn't let him go, wouldn't let him go leave the house and stuff, forbid him and forward him and stuff like that. The other hijackers came looking for the guy, he said, my dad won't give me my passport, won't let me go, I can't go. So they plan around him and they go. He tells all this stuff to the freaking FBI and the Saudis and stuff like that. He was supposed to be one of the hijackers. You're like, holy crap. Well, put him in jail or something like that. So since he didn't go, they put him into a re-education camp for about a year and a half. And he's under watching the Saudis for a long time ago. But Moshe Bob was one of the missing hijackers. You know, one of the teams had four and not five. The three teams had five and one had four. And that was why, because Moshe Bob was supposed to go. So they tried to get the other guy in there, Ramsey bin Al-Sheb, who applied three or four places. and. You know, unlike when Sheikh Rahman was put on the lookout list and was allowed into the country despite being on the lookout list, which was basically on a CD-ROM and, and no one was checking the CD-ROM for everyone's name that was on the lookout list. Ramsey bin Al-Shib was on a lookout list and finally the list had got circulated. So he applied in Hamburg and Berlin and Frankfurt. And then I want to say went to Prague and Paris or something like that. He got turned down for visas everywhere. The replacement for Ramsey bin Al-Shib got a visa flew to Tampa and tried to get in Tampa and got turned around by a DHS INS guy at the time, got turned around. One of the hijacker support team was there waiting for him at the airport. And then when he got sent back on the next flight back to Germany or Paris, he went back there and that's why they just decided to go. And the original plan for the whole 9-11 thing was supposed to be two attacks, one out of Bangkok, uh, to attack places on the West Coast, and another one out of New York and Boston to attack places on the East Coast. And the whole bin Laden, uh, who was the uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, leader of the thing, just said it's going to be a little too complicated. Let's just do one. We got to get away with one. We can do this. And that's really why the plot just focused on the New York and the Boston planes to do that. But initially, the plan was to do this on both sides. So Bangkok was a little bit of a uh, uh, thing in the back of my mind. So that years later, when I did go overseas, I wanted to go to Bangkok because I knew there was some terrorism fingers there and I could keep my terrorism fingers active while I was in the RSO world. So, like I said, we did a couple of, I spent a whole year working the 9-11 case as a DS case agent. And uh, I, I souped over a supervisor for a couple of DS people, like TDY people up to help me. Because even just like in the uh, 
the first attack by Ramsey Youssef, there was some visa angles in there. We're looking at passport frauds and visa frauds as additional charging things to have in addition to, you know, killing 3,000 people at the time. So we had some visa aspects. I had some people working those things with the PII team back in Washington. Another thing that got me going back to Washington was PII was involved in these terrorism investigations happening everywhere, and I wanted to be part of that. But after a year, uh, let's see, I got back in 98. I did the bombing investigation for four years. Of course, DS in their wisdom says, you know what? You've been doing terrorism too long. You need to move on somewhere. So they transferred me down to Washington. I was doing an IP tour. Uh, and I was only there for about a month and a half when uh, they attacked Bali. And then suddenly PI goes, uh, we only got three people experienced in doing terrorism investigations. And one's Jim Miner. He's down here. Can we send him? And IP said, sure. So I joined a PIA agent and I ended up going to, to Bali where they killed 202 people in a, in a car bombing and a suicide bombing. And in a little known attack, they also attacked the American consulate agency that was in Bali also. And uh, so I fly over, go home, grab my stuff. I can't find my weapons bag. <laughs> Typical fun DS story. Couldn't find my weapons bag, but I had to fly my weapon in a case. So I grabbed the drill case, put my weapon inside there, my empty magazines, my holster and stuff, put it in my baggage, flew over, connected in Tokyo. And in Tokyo, of course, the cops call you and go, you know, Mr. Miner, Mr. Miner, they call you at the gate. I'm like, yes, yes, come over there. You have gun in your luggage? <laughs> yes. Okay, come with us, you know, in front of all the people at the gate. Yes, I have gun in my luggage. So they take me down on the tarmac. I got to open up the bag and show my gun, make sure it's unloaded, check the serial numbers and stuff on the paperwork and stuff underneath the tarmac. Everybody in the gate area looking down at this going on, opening my suitcase, wondering who's this guy, you know, opening. and I'm embarrassed as hell. I have this Ryobi drill kit that I opened up. It's got my gun in there. And I'm wondering one of the Japanese guys is going to go, Ryobi, what the hell is Ryobi drill and your gun? And are you really pleased with it? Let me see your ID and explain this all the way. But went pretty quick. Put the gun back in the bag. They take it, take it inside. They put it on the plane. I fly down to uh, Bali, Jakarta. I get off the plane and I meet seven guys from the FBI who are just arriving on a different flight out of LA. And it's seven guys from the New York JTTF that I'd worked with for the last four years on the different cases and stuff. So I, at least they arrived and I knew a whole bunch of people in the FBI down there in Bali. Bali was a, uh, a J.R. Jamai Salamia attack. And they had a suicide bomber go into an Irish pub called Paddy's Bar and he was strapped with explosives. Uh, and he popped off inside the bar and killed 15 or 18 people and injured 50. It was a packed bar. And that explosion brought everybody out of uh, the restaurant, that sort of open air restaurant with tiki things in front, put all those people out onto the street. And then the other guy set off a car bomb right in front of the street, which blew the whole roof off the building and killed everyone on the streets and stuff. Well, there was a third bomb in that attack. And that was a, a pipe bomb that they put out at the consular agency, which was three, four miles away out of, out of the town. Uh, it was a residence and an office building for the consular agent there. But a diplomatic facility, a declared diplomatic facility. But we had a cop in front of there that the embassy paid for. Jake Wallman was the RSO and the embassy paid for a cop. And he had a submachine gun. So it looks like the bad guys when they arrived didn't try to do anything with the guy on the uh, submachine gun in front, two guys on a, on a moped. So they went around the side and they put the bomb on the side of the building there and it had a... Uh, a cell phone on it. So it was called and it detonated. Uh, and then, you know, the cop went around there. The cop wasn't injured or anything like that. And nobody took over at the embassy. It, uh, the consular agency wasn't a ground attack or anything. Motorcycle took off. Guys are gone. 
So when we all arrive, we all, of course, are concentrating on the car bombing and the suicide bombing and stuff. But the Indonesians are not cooperating. You know, this is our case. We know better. We know what to do and blah, blah, blah. And so they wouldn't let us near the crime scene. And we're trying to talk to them about, you know, concentric circles. And, hey, we found the, uh, the VIN number on the truck chassis a half a mile away in Nairobi. You might want to expand your search out looking for car parts and, and close the circle down there. In the meantime, you know, they're, they got brooms out there and they're, sh- they're sweeping everything to the side because got to get the street opened again. You know, it was just a bombing yesterday, but you know, we that, it's a main street. We need it opened and stuff. You know, we were like, uh, you're sweeping evidence into holes and stuff and you're hosing everything down. You're losing the, the, the stuff we need there. But we were kind of fighting with them. They wouldn't let us. The Australians who had like 88 people killed in that attack, they were like fighting with the Indonesians. We want access, we want in there. So it was a bunch of, of fighting going on there. So I, I said, well, you know, bomb at the consular agency. I'm going out there. Can you give me one guy from the team? So I take the bomb tech with me. And he and I were out there. And of course, we realized that the bombing's not in front of the concert agency. It's around the corner. But they still had it taped off. So he says, let's see if we can find some parts. Okay, I'm game. It's 95 degrees out, sunny in Indonesia, of course, a beautiful day. But we go down on our hands and knees and we put some ropes out there and we carded off. And we started a hard target, rich search on the ground and hands and knees. And we started finding some pieces. So they had put the... Uh, the bomb right next to the curb. So part of the curb had absorbed that, but some of the pieces went maybe gone straight up and came straight down. They were pretty close to where this little crater was on the side there. So I found a piece and it turned out to be a piece of a SIM card for the phone amongst other pieces. We brought that back to the bureau and then we brought that to the Australians and the Australians were like, well, we could exploit this, you know? And we were like, well, you know, it's it really might be a sign of cooperation. We give it to the Indonesians and we work with them. and. So we presented it to the Indonesians. Hey, we found this while we were examining the scene. And of course, you know, what are you doing examining that scene? You're not supposed to be there. And stuff like that. We were like, well, you closed off the Patty's Bars crime scene. And so we're experienced at this. We know what we're doing and stuff. So it was a little bit of, okay, give us that evidence. And we came up with a scheme that I presented, you know, after the Nairobi Dar attacks, we had put together like a hundred slide PowerPoint. And we said, hey, you know, this looks like it could be part of Al-Qaeda and stuff. J.I. was affiliated with Al-Qaeda. I said, how about you look at some of our, just watch our show, our PowerPoint show. We have experienced investigators here with the FBI team and stuff. How about we just show you what we've learned? It might help your investigation, kickstart and stuff like that. So we were able to sit down with the chief of police, who Mati Pastika, his name was, who was a Catholic on a Hindu island in a Muslim nation of Indonesia, those odd soliloquies of, of history. Uh, he invited us up, we gave this presentation, we're sitting down in a dark room and we have all these Indonesian detectives in there and we're going slow and I'm trying to talk and when words don't translate to the cops, we get it translated and stuff. And in the dark, all the FBI guys walk in and the Australians walk in and they're in the back of the room watching. And I went through this briefing at about an hour and a half long about the stuff there. They turned the lights on and they're like, okay, so what kind of questions? They had a load of questions. But it wasn't just me to answer the questions. Now it was the FBI guys, it was Australians. We can do this, we can do that, exploit the phone. Let's build out the network of who called that phone. We'll find out people. Uh, somebody says, I want to pursue that whole thing about they rented buildings to put the bomb truck in there. They had to do the same thing here. Let's find out where they rented it and stuff like that. So the chip ended up giving us a name of a guy, a number of a guy. They went back there. They put it into the cell phone towers and stuff. It pings back. It's this mosque. They had informants in the mosque. It, it ends up breaking up into the cell. So big kudos from me, from the FBI and Australians and stuff for helping do the PowerPoint and find the self card, self, the, uh, the SIM card for the phone, which helped the exploit to get us into the cell layer. So lots of kudos for me from that, you know, for just basically doing my job and stuff. 
but it was it was a big point for me in my career too. Feeling you know worthy. I the nine eleven attack was just a year before. You know I don't have it on now because I have poison ivy on my arms. You can see, but uh, I, I wear a band for my aunt who was in the World Trade Center and died that day. Uh, uh, my niece called her and said, hey, Jimmy's out on the street. When you get out of the building, go see him. And she never made it out of the building. She was killed. So real in for terrorism, I'm, I'm you know, dedicated to getting even and getting these bad guys in jail and stuff. So helping to get that cell broke up was really great. Diaz says, why don't you go see Francis Taylor? You remember Francis X. Taylor, uh, assistant secretary? Well, at the time, he's the SCT, he's the, count, the coordinator for counterterrorism. He's going to Australia. So I fly from Bali back to Jakarta. And I'm on the plane with uh, Matty Pastiga, that chief of police I mentioned, the Catholic chief of police. And you do the typical on the plane, you put your gun in a bag, they staple it closed. They count 38 rounds of, of ammunition and stuff like that. I had a permit to carry in Indonesia. I was gonna turn the gun in, uh, the bullets in when I got to Jakarta. I get off the plane, the RSO picks me up. I go back to my hotel. Uh, I, I confirm I got my gun and stuff like that. I open the bag up and I have like a, uh, an ivory plated, an ivory handled 45 Colt right there. And I go, holy shit, this is not my gun. Turns out I got the chief of police's gun and he has mine. So he calls me up. We're sitting at the hotel bar now. We'll just figure this out later. We're at the hotel bar and we make an agreement. He's going to come to the embassy the next day and we'll exchange guns and stuff like that. Meantime, the RSO was like, let's get him in the embassy. We can get him debriefing in the embassy. We're not just going to stand at the gate and, and let him walk away. So we did that the next day. He comes to the embassy. I just want my gun. He's like, oh, come on inside, come on inside, blah, blah, blah. We get him inside with the RSO, the station chief and the ambassador. And he gives us a whole debriefing. And, and he's like, yeah, Jim Minor, this DS guy from the State Department, very helpful, gave us this briefing, talked about this, that, the other thing. So I'm, I'm riding the tailwinds of this. So this is really great stuff. He briefs everybody. And you know, to the ambassador in Indonesia where the attack happened. So another, a great thing. So when, when we finish, kudos to me again. You know, I have lunch with the ambassador, Skip Boyce, his name was. And then they sent me on a plane to uh, Canberra, the Sydney and Canberra, to go catch up with Frank Taylor and brief him on, on the bombing and have the investigation opened up and stuff. And again, they were giving me kudos for helping find that SIM card, which they weren't looking for at that bomb site. And helping, you know, break open the network and, and arrest the first guy. I want to say Danang or Patang, his name was, or something like that. First guy in the cell who was at the mosque and gave up some of the others and stuff. So I visit Frank Taylor and I brief him and then he leaves and I leave. And I go back to DS and stuff like that. A few years later, that was in 2002. Two years later, when I got assigned to be uh, the deputy RSO and the acting RSO in, in Bangkok, who turned out to be my ambassador, but Skip Boyce from... Indonesia, who I briefed that day with Matty Pastika about the Indonesian bombing. So I was, I was in with Flynn with the ambassador there. He, he knows I knew my shit. And that was Bali. That takes us to 2002. Time flies. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So you were, yeah, let's, let's change gears a little bit, but it kind of actually rolls right into it. Uh, although, you know, it's not terrorism, but it's related. Uh, you talked, uh, you wrote about a coup that happened in Thailand in 2005. Can you talk a little bit about that and what went on and your yeah, role? You know, when I, when I, I was in IP and I had a, you know, a, like I said, I had a lot of goodwill for my terrorism stuff like that. People knew my name in the, in some of the front offices. So I, I, my, uh, my assistant director for our, my original director for IP said, you know, Hey, you're basically coming down. You got a choice of where you want to go to. And I picked Bangkok because I said, I wanted to go there. And I had, I had worked at TDY. One of the first things I did, I did a month TDY for an APEC in Bangkok, where I was the deputy 
manager for a PSC that we had hired, one of these uh, WAE RSOs came over there, Chris Leibigood. He was the Apex Security Coordinator for DS, but I came out from IP as his deputy. This was before the uh, Bali bombing. So I had been to Bangkok and I said, I'll take Bangkok. Uh, at the time, Bangkok was the largest embassy in the world uh, until Kabul and, and Baghdad uh, came on board and they were bigger, uh, got bigger. Uh, we were bigger than Frankfurt. We had 800 cleared Americans working. I had about 1,400 FSNs, uh, 350 apartments that we had to do, in couple, including a couple of compounds that were solely U.S. government employees on there. Plus, we were building another one. The Australians wanted us to buy their residential compound, even though they were leaving because of setback concerns and stuff like that. So I had my work cut out for me. And I, and I, I, got, I was able to go back to DS and complain, too. We started the new global IDs, the GLID IDs. And I was one of the first places I got two printers. And when people started coming out of the woodwork to change all these government IDs, you know, I started cracking down on that's why I realized I had so many people out there. There were offices of people that never came to the embassy that were just, but they were in a government building. Oh, you find out they're on a Thai military facility processing U.S. classified. And you're like, who are these people and what are they doing there? And, and they're trying to give you excuses like, well, we've been processing classified in here since we were doing the... B-52 linebacker missions back in Vietnam. So 1970, we were here. It's been, you know, we've been storing classified and working out here. You're like, uh, yeah, that's really not meeting any standards anymore. So let's try and get you up the standards. And, you know, I thought it was going to be a quiet place. And uh, I brought my family, which was, you know, my two little girls, four and six or something like that. My wife, who's, a, who's a, an internist, a doctor, she goes to work for the medical unit. and. Uh, so I figured an icy big tour in that first year there, actually before the coup was this tsunami. Uh, was this the coup first? No, the tsunami was the end of 2004, my first year there. And I was on a plane to go deliver bomb blankets and the plane was sat on the tarmac for an hour. And someone said they had an earthquake down in the, in the Indonesia and that had a tsunami. And you know, what the hell is a tsunami? You hear about tsunamis, but nobody knew at that time what it was, but we sat on there for a while. And finally that afternoon, we, uh, we flew down and me and the DOD force protection guy flew down. We were delivering bomb blankets in case you found a suspicious dice device when the port, when the Navy was down doing ship visits. So we got down there. We gave the chief of police a, uh, the bomb blanket, but said, of course, this has been overtaken by a fence. We're down there. And he's asking us for replacement pickup trucks and new cameras and stuff and new motorcycles for the cops and stuff. And I was like, uh, I just came out of Bosnia a few years ago. I said, there are bodies all over the streets on the ride there. And you come from the airport, one side of the island got hit and was devastated. The wave came this way and devastated all the resorts on this side. Other side of the island, nothing happened. People are getting off the plane with golf clubs and it's still a resort. This half of the island driving down from the airport, there are bodies in, wrapped in sheets on the streets. So I'm like, you need refrigeration trucks, you're gonna need DNA, you need food, you need water, stuff like that. You know, I, I was like, you know, I literally joked, you know, you need to talk to Japanese about getting pickup trucks and motorcycles and stuff. You know, you need more. We'll give you more. And then we work with the embassy to get people down there. And that was, I don't say the day after Christmas it was. And my family had flown to Koh Samui. So I was like, I can't come. I'm down there. I set up a temporary consulate and we flew some Americans down there. And we started processing the Americans who were showing up and they had no passports, no IDs. They were sleeping in their hooch that morning, uh, you know, on, on the beach when the wave came through and, you know, their son is missing and stuff or everything. And we got them back to Bangkok and we got them to the embassy and people at the airport, again, like a witness train of people, identify them, get their pictures and stuff. 
send it up to the embassy, people at the airport to meet them and put them in hotels that the Thai government was giving them. And then go to the embassy and get, you know, picture ID and verify the passports and stuff, and then get them letters, humanitarian parole letters to get them back into the States and stuff. And this went on for a week. And consular had this list of like 5,000 names of people that were missing in Thailand. But a lot of names I started checking. And because of my DS background, I knew how to check immigration database. And I would look and I'm going, well, this, by, this person arrived back in the States. So, so she and he, this married couple, they're not in Thailand. They arrived back, you know, three days before the, the thing happened. I realized there were lots of people that were just calling up and saying, hey, my relatives were in Thailand. They might have been killed in the tsunami. But some people were not down in Phuket or down in PTI Island and stuff. So after seven days, I came back to Bangkok and I got with the immigration guy and I got them to give me a CD-ROM filled with the names of every American in the last 90 days that had arrived and departed Thailand. And lucky for us, the U.S. government had just recently gave the Thai government a new immigration system. So getting all that information onto a CD-ROM was pretty easy. And they gave us great access to this. We could look at people's pictures and stuff from a remote terminal at the embassy and stuff. And, you know, Uncle Sam did right in this case. So we, I, spent, I spent a couple of days, three days with this consular lady, and we went through this CD-ROM and we basically eliminated like 3,000, 5,000 of the names off there. We got this list down to like 700 names uh, down there. And then I was like, I got to go. My family's still on vacation. I'm going to go join them for a day or two. And I went down there and stuff. She won FSN of the year for her work during the, during the, uh, the, the uh, tsunami down there. Uh, for resolving the list. And I, I kind of laughed back then. I go, yeah, well, I gave her the CD-ROM. She was able to narrow that list down. I said, I, I left to go vacation with my family who had now been gone for nine days without me, you know, down in the beautiful island, the resorts there. So that was the tsunami. And then sure enough, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, that following September, the prime minister is in New York and the locals throw him out of office and have a coup. So me and uh, I was the acting RSO for about eight months until the senior RSO came there, Larry Salmon. He was, uh, he was head of the Karzai detail in Afghanistan, in Kabul. And so he got delayed getting out of there and he finally came out of there. He became senior RSO. So I reverted to my position as deputy RSO. Uh, but you know, there we are, tanks on the streets, uh, gunfights between skirmishes between people that are part of an organized and unorganized disarmament militia fighting with some troops on the streets and stuff. So for probably three or four days, we did 12 hour shifts. Who so was working at the embassy, keeping an open line, the DS and what was going on there. But it was, it was, it was one of the three seasons in, in Thailand. It was hot season. It was hot and wet season. And then it was damn hot. So we were in damn hot season and the Thais don't like to fight a damn hot season. So probably two days, three days of loose skirmishes and stuff. And then pretty soon, People are out taking pictures with the tanks, you know, they're posing and taking selfies and things kind of calm down. The uh, prime minister is not going to fly back. They're not going to let him into the country. So he goes into exile somewhere else. Prime Minister Toxin, his name was Toxin Shinawatra. He was a billionaire well before Donald Trump, you know, the telecommunications country, uh, company. So we had a coup and that, 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 that didn't go too bad. I mean, but hey, it, it looks great on your EER when you got a coup, you got a tsunami. Always had good things going on there. And I love being an RSO because, you know, even though every day was different, every day was the same. And pretty soon you got good at dealing with the things that came in there, the walk-ins you dealt with, the suspicious stuff that's going on there, dealing with headquarters who finally uh, opened up that portals that embassies could be, you could see through the embassy cameras back in Washington. I forget what it's called. 
not seamless or something like that. There was some system, but you know, I, I, I finally got the embassy to put up a camera and be able to record license plates and cars that would come by because we had so many surveillance incidents. And I would fight constantly fighting with DS. I'd be like, you guys are changing the resolution on my camera. They're like, oh yeah, because your DVR doesn't work so good. It won't last for two weeks if you, if you put the resolution down there. I'm going, but I can't see license plates. I can't see people in the cars if you keep changing my resolution. So stop touching my cameras or I'm going to turn it off. They're like, oh, you can't do that. I'm like, oh, I got an SEO here. He said we could, <laughs> you know. So fighting with headquarters, but great ERs. I had a good boss there. Larry handled... You know, I was a family guy. I had my kids. I went swim with them all the time. I went to the uh, all the organized events and stuff like that. I took care of running the office investigations. We had a, uh, a visa fraud investigator, an ARSO. Larry went to the karaoke's and went out and played golf with the the cops and stuff. It was a nonstop litany of guests coming in there. So a lot of times he would just babysit all the guests, the Codells and the Senatels and stuff that would come by there, and you know the chief of USAID and all these things. So I ran the office. He did all the representation stuff and it worked out great. Uh, it was a, it was a great, it was a great tour of Thailand. Yeah. You left Thailand and went, uh, is this when you became an 1811 or you got picked up or, uh, uh after that, later, it, was, it looks like, yeah. Yeah. It was 2004 to 2007. I, I was in Thailand and then I came back and I went to, I think the training center. Oh yeah. It has your training center. And then you did a TIA a special assistant, but I really want to get in the interest of time. If you're okay with this, I want to jump ahead to uh, the Benghazi report and maybe even talk about the Boston marathon bombing and your involvement in all those. Would you be willing to share uh, a little bit? Yeah. What well, the Boston marathon? What was the other one? Oh, the Benghazi. Let's do the Boston Marathon first. Uh, like I said, I, I did 20 years, and then uh, my, my kids were going to school, wanted to go to school. My wife said, I really don't want to go back overseas. She's a doctor. I thought she'd go back to work full time and start to make some money, you know, what I married her for. <laughs> and uh, so the opportunity came when they formed the TIA, the Threat Investigations and Analysis Directorate. They stood up a new office. They pulled down the command center, OSAC. ITA and PII. So PII was really forming up from uh, the foreign service and stuff. And they wanted to have a long-term presence in there. So they created an 1811-14 job to be the deputy office director. So I applied for that and I got it. And that was 2011. So I, I finished up my last two or three months as a special assistant for the TIA director, Rob Hartung, and started going to work for Carlos Matus, who became the uh, you know, Rich Ober first and then Carlos Matus and then I think who was afterwards, but anyway, I went to PII and I became the permanent down there. So I really, I really became the guy right in the office SOPs and stuff. Had a background in terrorism. So we talked about how to respond to terrorism. I was still running the PII shops for all the ungas. I think I did eighteen or nineteen ungas in my twenty-seven years up there. And so we would go up there and in New York and unga, we would run the counter surveillance teams and incidents response teams and suspicious incidents and stuff. So I did that too, all being tied in with the JTTF in New York every time you suspicious incident. We tied the bureau in there and make sure that they knew what we were doing. And we had, you know, the terrorism people knowing in case we latched on to something. But uh, when was it Boston? Was it 2016 was the Boston Marathon bombing or 2014? Anyway, the Boston Marathon bombing happens. And PII says we're going to send some people up there to support the JTTF. We had two JTTFs working in Boston at the time. So I become the supervisor and I think we sent up seven other people up there 
and I sit down in the FBI command post and I help integrate RDS agents in there. And the Bureau runs a very organized incident response team called Rapid Start. They just send in people in there. And as leads come in, these FBI agents, supervisors and stuff, they triage all the leads. Hey, I saw something suspicious, you know, this car, this place or something like that. They just grab the next two FBI guys in line, bring them up here. They write out a lead on a sheet or type it up now into a thing called Rapid Start Database. Type it up, go interview Bob Smith who saw this on such and such date. Bring it back, write the whole thing up and let us know what the results are. If it's important, call us. If not, put it into the system. And then these two guys would just walk away. And so this train of 150 people are in the hallway waiting for leads. And I put my DS guys into this lead train and they get on there. Sometimes you pair them up with a bureau guy because you have to have access to the bureau systems to write their reports and stuff. And sometimes we just paired up DS guys who were JTTF. So we did that and that went on for a day or two. And we're trying to figure out who Black Hat and White Hat were, the two brothers, the Sarnev brothers. I think of it, Joker and the other guy. Joker, anyway, uh, the Tassanarev brothers. And we don't know who they are. And, and we're trying to figure out how we can figure out who they are. And at a certain point, the Bureau starts considering putting them out, their pictures out there, getting the public to go ahead and, and help us out there. And the Bureau is fighting and they said, oh, we're not going to do it. And then a local news affiliate has an inside source to the Bureau, JTDF in Boston. They said, hey, the local news is going to run at like six o'clock at night. They're going to run the pictures of the guys on the TV. So either you get ahead of this and you put it out there or the local station is going to do it. So the bureau comes out and they do like a six o'clock or a seven o'clock press conference and said, we're going to do this. And they put the pictures of the guys out there and stuff. And of course we get more leads of possibles, but none of the leads that night were the white hat or the black hats. So we, we learned later on that some people knew who they were, but they, they didn't call in there. But that night uh, I'm working, I think eight o'clock in the morning till midnight. Uh, every day because I'm the supervisor, I want to be there and free up a guy. I don't even know the guy sitting next to me, you know, doing stuff. But I know the FBI system. I know the FBI people and stuff. And uh, I get off at 12 o'clock and go out for a, a drink after work with uh, somebody else. And Chuck Shannon from the Boston field office uh, calls and said, hey, a cop just got shot and stuff like that. I was like, oh, OK, you know, where and when and blah, blah, blah. Uh, nothing we can do. A cop shot. We don't know if anything's tied in or not like that. So I leave. I go back to my hotel. At, um, you know, one thirty in the morning. I'm back in bed, going to sleep. Chuck Channon, meantime, responds to the incident nearby in Watertown, Massachusetts. Uh, he gets out there. Five o'clock in the morning. Four thirty in the morning. I get a phone call. It's Chuck Shannon. Hey, all hands on deck. This is one of the uh, the bombers was involved in the shooting and stuff like that. I need everyone down here. I said, okay, I'll call everybody and get them down there. But where is here, Chuck? Where do you want? He goes, go to Watertown. Just come down to water, get in a cab. I'm like, okay. I'll, I'll. Every cab driver is going to know where Watertown is. Just get in here and come down here. Go to this. He gave me a cross street. He said, just go there. Everyone's meeting here. You'll get there. We'll fan you out. We'll explain when you get here. We just need all hands on duty. So I called my other five or six JTTF guys. I wake them all up. Get there, get in the cars, get to Watertown, go to this street, get down there as soon as possible. So hop in my car with everybody else. We get down there, I get out. I see Chuck Shannon and Chuck Shannon basically says, we're recording it off this whole neighborhood. It was a shootout. It was two blocks away from here. One of the guys got away, got out of his car, and he's around here somewhere. I, I need you to just go down this street. You look down this long avenue. And at every cross street, I need you to go. If there's cops here already, make sure they know to to lock off this neighborhood. You just go to the next empty street and you're on that corner, lock off the street. So I grab a DS guy from the Boston field office. He's got a, a shotgun. 
I have my Colt submachine gun with me and we just walk down four blocks, find an empty street. There's nobody out there. And we lock off that street. Cars are coming. We're turning them away. People are coming out of their houses, back in the house and stuff. So we're out on the street and this goes on for hours and hours. The HRT and the SWAT teams from the bureau, they're out doing like a coordinate search like in Fallujah. They're, they're knocking on doors. They're searching people's garages and stuff. They're going in people's houses because he's somewhere in this neighborhood. The cops said they got there quick enough. He couldn't have gone far. So we were there for maybe two o'clock in the afternoon or so. I'm missing a part of the story. We get pulled off and we went down and me and some of the other DS guys were pulling security outside of the, what's the next day. No, we identified that guy that night. No, I got to think of a sequence in there, Cody, but we, we were part of the team that was on the security for the apartment for the, for the brothers. The FBI launched their team in there and we were outside. So DS was participating there, but I'm trying to think of, we knew earlier on. I was working in the command center. It must've been that night. So that raid on the apartment happened the next day. So that later that night, I go back in and I'm working the command center. And we're watching the, uh, they identify the guy. They got his picture and stuff and they bring in his, his uh, ID information. One of the Sonata brothers. I run his name and I pull up his visa picture right away. There it is, his name. I run his last name again. I pull up the other brother and I'm sitting there and I got both of them, just like I'm looking at you side by side. I got both white hat and black hat on the picture. And the prosecutor standing right behind me goes, is that him? I go, yeah, that's him, that's white hat. He's like, holy shit, we got their names. Go, good, let's get these pictures off there. And you know, I'm printing them off there. I'm, I'm sending an email to PII. Hey, I've given these names off to the FBI and the US Attorney's Office, this is white hat and black hat. And then that night was the... Uh, there was a shootout and he was hiding out there. And then later in the day at about five o'clock, somebody comes out of their house because now they let the neighborhood go free again. They can't find him. They open it up. Some guy goes to the back of his house, sees the canopy on a sailboat is torn away and sees the blood trail, calls the cops. They surround the building and stuff, put snipers up on the roof. Helicopter goes up. They start shooting at the guy in the, in the, in the back of the sailboat and stuff. The local news media intercept the, uh, the feed from the news helicopter and suddenly it's on the seven o'clock news. Everybody's watching this guy in the car get in the sailboat get shot up. So the bureau cuts the feed from the state police. And we're watching it in the command center. Watch this whole takedown. They get him out, HRT, fast ropes, and uh, goes into the backyard, cuffs him and he's down and stuff like that. Big celebration out on the streets. Thousands of people. I see Chuck Shannon and all the other DS guys that were all part of the search that were still out on the street. 12, 14 hours later, you know, all getting mobbed and stuff by the groups and stuff. It was reminiscing of after 9-11 when the people on the West Side Highway were cheering all the first responders every day going down to the pile and stuff like that. It was it was a great feeling to be part of the team, to, to get that resolution and stuff. You know, Chuck Shannon and the other guys that were out there, the Boston people that stayed on top of that whole thing after the cop got killed, they tracked it down and stuff. An amazing time to be part of DS. And so, you know, another nice thing to be part of for DS and to was like, pad my resume, but to go back there and have, talk to people about what happens out there. We did it at uh, UNGA. We talked to people. We had uh, a PII conference at the time. So we talked to some of the bosses and stuff and the senior staff meeting and stuff. So I got, I got pretty well known by people there, which is about the same time I was a DSSA president. I took over for Jim Bocicalupo. So I was getting a, a lot of visibility in DS at the time. 
with all these things that were going on there. A little bit of the guy, remember the guy from Dog Patch that had the cloud over him? Mm-hmm. And everywhere he went, it got rained on and stuff like people. I was like, no, 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 no. Things blow up and then I go. I'm not there blowing things up. Things happen, I go. That's that's my job. So that was uh, that was the Boston Marathon bombing. I got some nice kudos from that. Here it is, the uh, Superior Honor Award with uh, like 15 or 18 of us. The analysts were great working that stuff. The connections and stuff. We pulled up all his flight information as soon as we had white hat and black hat. You know, we were right on top of that presenting him. He came into the country, he went here, back and forth. Wow. That tied together the visit by the Soviet embassy employees that drove up from Washington and wanted to see the FBI. And the FBI told them to pound sand. And we, we flagged them off to the PL guy from, from Boston. And the PL guy was like, I think these are the guys they wanted to tell us about. We were like, yeah, no shit. They're trying to cover their ass on this one. Because the, the, uh, the Federal Security Bureau in Russia had their eye on them and had passed some information back to the bureau that these guys were bad guys. And the bureau never followed up with it. So the Bureau didn't want that information out that they had messed up again and again when it came to terrorism. That was crazy. Wow. So let's, uh, we're pushing on two hours, but I want to hear more about uh, if you, if you share about the Benghazi investigation, I know there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a movie made about things. I don't know how accurate it was. Some people say some of it was, some people say none of it was. What are your thoughts? Uh, what was your role in that investigation and uh, what can you share with us about it? Yeah, I, I, I was a big part of that investigation. I helped when the uh, agents came back. Uh, they were interviewed by one of the PII guys, Dave Nordelutz, uh, flew over to Germany and did some of the interviews with the DS guys that were there. So we got their first reports back. And in my role as a supervisor at PII, I was part of the group that put together the report of what happened and shared it with DS management and to the bureau and stuff like that. Uh, but also being a JTTF guy, uh, when they deployed over, they were trying to get into Benghazi. And of course, Benghazi's hot. You can't just go to Benghazi and stuff. So Dave's over in Germany and the Bureau uh, sends a team over to Tripoli. So I joined the, t- the team that goes to Tripoli, hoping to get back to Benghazi and get a little bit more. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, the people in Benghazi, uh, let, me, let me back up. The movie was pretty accurate uh, from everything that I saw. Of course, there's some dramatization. It's a movie and stuff like that. But uh, in, in my role in PII, about April of that year, I don't think when the attack was June, July or something like that. Attack was September. Uh, it was on September 11th, actually. September 11th? Yeah. In, in maybe April of that year, they had somebody throw a hand grenade at their uh, Benghazi facility. And I went home that day, literally, that's what I do for PII, packed my ready bag, put some clothes in there, and I was getting ready to get on a flight at 11 o'clock that night to go to Libya with a, another guy uh, and be part of the PII response team. Hey, our consulate was attacked. Oh, I got home that day and was packing and stuff. My flight was later, and I got a call from PII. I said, hey, the embassy called, the embassy called and said not to respond. We know who did it already. Uh, you know, they were already refixing the wall and stuff. Don't worry about it. So, you know, what does that mean? We know who did it. Well, apparently a guard who had been fired, a local guard who had been fired, uh, drives a white pickup truck and the embassy has uh, the consulate in Benghazi has some cameras and they saw the white pickup truck drive away and they they know it's the same guy. So I was like, okay, are they going to arrest him and stuff? And, you know, you don't understand. There's no organized government in Libya right now. There is no cops. There are no police. There is no jail system. There's no jails operating and stuff like that. It's lawless. You're like, oh, okay. So 
what do we do? He said, well, we got a local militia. If he comes by again, the local militia is going to try and arrest him or something like that and just hold him. Okay, so I don't go. But I get an idea now of what's going on in Benghazi and in Libya. It's kind of lawless and stuff like that. So I deploy over to Libya with a team of five or six. And then the legate from Cairo comes down, an Arab speaker, and he, we all fly into Tripoli and stuff like that. So we spend a couple of days trying to get permission from the existing Libyan provisional government to go to Benghazi and stuff. They can't guarantee our safety and stuff. So we're on hold. We're trying. We're trying. The embassy ambassadors trying and stuff like that. Meantime, uh, DOD put together a plot and they say, we're going to go back to Benghazi. We've got our own people doing security, plus some contacts of the local militia that are friendly in Benghazi that are let us go. So Noodles gets on a team from Frankfurt, uh, lands in Italy, grabs some other bodies. They go down to Benghazi. They get in some cars, get protected by a local militia. Basically the same militia that escorts the whole embassy Benghazi people down to the airport at the end. Well, that local militia escorts them back to the the compound and there they're able to start taking some crime scene photos, do some measurements, they're grabbing all the papers and stuff, taking pictures, no classified. Of course, that was one of the big things that was a classified. They had that uh, that laptop capability of, of classified. It was called a chalk machine. You could you can get and receive and send uh, classified, but you couldn't print anything. So there was no classified. When they bugged out that morning out of the uh, Benghazi thing, they took the shark with them. They, they got that out of there. And some of the DVD, the DVR, camera recording and stuff like that, that was all taken from there before they evacuated the DS guys. So uh, Noodles got into Benghazi eventually. I never did. I, I did all my work in, in Tripoli and stuff like that. But the actual Benghazi thing, I, I think about how the whole thing happened and stuff. They knew they were in a world of hurt out there and they were at the end of the, end of the grapevine kind of thing. Uh, and they didn't have a lot of security. Uh, Eric Nordstrom was the RSO back in Tripoli. He kept asking for help. They didn't get it. The ambassador, special rep, Chris, Chris Stevens, ambassador Stevens, he flies into Benghazi. And they, he brings two bodies with him and stuff. And they only got two or three bodies uh, left in uh, Benghazi now because he, he wasn't there before. They bring him in there. Uh, and they and they there was some word out in the local paper that he was coming to open up this American corners thing, a little, you know, embassy provided embassy uh, laptop and Internet access and stuff with a satellite dish. They were going to quote American corners, a little thing there. But it was a September 11th. So they knew he needed to, to, to lay low on September 11th, just in case, because every embassy and consulate in the world got that message, lay low on September 11th, just in case kind of thing. We weren't that far out of. 9-11 still, you know, so, so he was laying low that day. And I think it was pretty accurately portrayed. There was a couple of the DS guys that were sitting around the pool, smoking and joking. The ambassador was back in his hooch uh, with Chris, with the uh, communicator and stuff like that. And these bad guys came pretty quickly down there to the front gate. They weren't, you know, they weren't out there protesting for two hours and everyone was on their edge and stuff like that. These guys came around a corner. The, uh, the local police drove away. They came right to the front gate, 50 yards away, pretty quickly on there. They threw a little hand grenade over the gate. These little gelatina bombs, like a like gunpowder bomb, called a hand grenade, but it was a small explosive. They threw it over the wall. It blows up. That's the first the DS guy knew, any of the DS guys knew that the place was under attack. And at this point, they're already at the front gate. They got guns 
and they're pointing guns at the front guard, Libyan national who's there, pointing guard, open the door, open the gate, or you're dead. He backs up, he opens the gate, they're on the compound within a minute of the explosion going off. And again, we got all the DVR tapes and we had all those tapes and we brought them back and put together a presentation in PII as what happened. And we shared it with the, the DOD and stuff and the agency. And we've got their drone footage also all put into a nice package that PII presented and showed to the IC and the Secretary of State and you know a lot of various people. We put a lot of dog and pony shows together after that was together. But basically they were on the compound right away. Some gunshots went off in the air. BS guys reacted immediately. One guy runs to the talk. There's a guy in there watching the cameras and stuff. He's trying to get everybody on the radio. Hey, there are people on the compound with guns right away. Another guy goes to the talk. Somebody goes to get the ambassador. Two guys run to go get their kit because they're on the compound. They weren't kitted up or anything. They were just, you know, a hundred yards away from their hooch. So they run back to get over there. The other guy goes to get the ambassador and he gets some, well, uh, his, his vest on and stuff like that. It's a communicator and there's, they're in the same place and stuff like that. And they locked themselves in there and they realized there are bad guys running around on the compound already. And again, we got this on film watching them. Some guys run down towards, you know, uh, as the story continues, some guys run down there. The two DS guys, they try and run out of their, uh, uh, their hooch. They're kitted up, got their long weapons. They run in and right at the other end, 30 yards away is a mob of people, 15 to 20 people with guns. They turn around right away. They don't engage them or anything. They turn around, they run back into their hooch. They go back inside, they push in a, uh, a refrigerator up against the door in the room. Now this place also has a camera outside it. So we see this afterwards, the bad guys kind of walk quickly. They don't run after, but they walk quickly. They go into the place and they're banging on the door. As they open the door, they're looking around, they're banging on the door with the two DS guys are hiding behind the refrigerator. And they're they, later on, they like, we're holding the refrigerator up against the door. The mob's outside. They never shoot through the door. They never break the door open. They walk away. Okay, there's nothing here. They start stealing some stuff. They walk back outside and right across the courtyard there is the talk. Now, another smart DS guy said, you know, it's a double door, you know, wood door, not even a really thick wood door, but it's a double door. He said, if this is the talk, we should reinforce it. So he puts the brackets up there and gets a four by four. And inside the talk, they drop this four by four in place. Bad guys come over. They're banging on the door. And again, another video camera watching this. In the after in the AAR, you see these guys, they're banging on the door with their shoulders and stuff, and they're hurting their shoulders, and then and they're kicking the door and they can't get through. But nobody takes their AK and shoots at the door lock or the, at the hinges and stuff, trying to go in there. Okay, fine, let's go somewhere else. They go down there, they start to steal the cars because, of course, we have all the keys in the cars right there. They take some cars, they're milling around. Now they've got the local guard and they're harassing him. He was trying to hide, they're setting fire to the other building. Uh, by where the, uh, the the depot was, the car depot was. I'm going to say the GSO motor pool is the word I'm looking for. So they set fire to that building down there. And then they, uh, somehow they're figuring out that we're in the buildings or they suspect we're in the buildings because where the hell are the Americans? They got to be behind these locked doors. So they can't get into the ambassador's residence. They can't get into the other thing. They think we're all probably hiding by this one thing. So they bring the gasoline in there and they start, not gasoline, diesel. They put a diesel around there and set fire onto the place. Uh, so the DS agent that's in there, I think I remember all their names now. I think it was Chris. I don't remember his last name. I think I do, but I don't want to say it. But uh, he's in there. 
and he's on the radio and he's like, Hey, they're smoking us out of here. He's talking to the other agents that are on there. You got to come help me. You got to get me out of here. And the talk's calling now over to uh, the agency folks, the GRS folks say, Hey, we're under attack here. You need to get here and stuff like that. And they started that communication. They're calling Tripoli. They're on the phone, the sat phone with Tripoli. Hey, we need some help and blah, blah, blah. Now they're commuting and stuff, doing all the things they're supposed to. You know, one of the caveats that uh, people were like, you know, well, DS's behavior, how come the two guys never came out of that one room and came to rescue the ambassador and get him out of that room or rescue the talking stuff? Well, because there's a whole bunch of armed people out on the street there in the, on the compound. And quite honestly, had they run out there, they could have got into a firefight and got killed on the spot there. Now they were of no use to anybody. At least they're alive and stuff at this point. So the ambassador is, is stuck in the room and the smoke is pouring in there. So uh, the agent uh, gets on his hands and knees. He gets them and he gets them into the bathroom, which is like an additional room which has a, a door on it, but it has the DS locks on it so they can open up the, uh, the cage on the door, the grills, and get outside there. And as they're working their way into the bathroom, he gets in there and he's coughing up a lung and stuff. He's in a bad shape. Neither the ambassador or the communicator are behind him. So he's trying to get his breath. He's calling out to him. He's yelling to him. He opens the door. He's calling to him, come in here. He goes back out. And on, on several occasions, he said he crawls out on his hands and knees. He's looking for the ambassador, looking for the communicator can't find either one of them. So eventually he goes back into the bathroom, again, smoke inhalation, black burning diesel smoke, like burn pits, you think? Worse than that. So he gets out, he takes a ladder in the, in the alleyway where nobody happens to see him. He goes up onto the roof and then pushes the ladder down. He's up on the roof and he tries to breaking through the, uh, the glass top, but it's the uh, reinforced glass with metal in there. So he's hitting it with his pistol and his foot. He's trying to break it down there. He's exhausted. He can't break it open. He can't vent the place out. He can't get in there. And he's telling the guys, you need to come help me and get me out of here. Uh, the other guys can't come out because they're looking on the cameras on the, on the DVR and they can't come out because there's all these armed people around there. So the two guys are stuck in the room behind the refrigerator. The other two guys are stuck in the talk. They can't get out of there. Now, a half an hour, 45 minutes goes by and stuff like that. And he's up on the roof and he's calling. He said he can't get them out of there. They never made it out and stuff. The GRS guys finally make it to the compound. And they get on there and they come in the back way. And that's, this back way went, opens up to the little cafe that was right down the end there. The gates wide open. The, the GRS guys come right up there. And they right away, like they come to the talk. Are you okay? Where's the ambassador? The other agents come out there. And now we're sort of holding a part of the compound between the talk and the, uh, the building where the ambassador was. So they, Chris, the agent on the roof says, you know, hey, I need some help here and stuff like that. They put the ladder, they get him down. He tells them what happens. They go into the window and they're trying to find the ambassador. And they, they the GRS guys and the DS guys uh, are trying to get in there and find the ambassador. They find the communicator on the ground. They drag him out, take him out of the window of the bathroom, drop him on the ground there, can't find the ambassador. I'll speculate, as I've always done, we think the ambassador ran in hot and hid in an armoire, closed the door of the armoire, tried to get inside there and hide, and, and eventually succumbed to the, to the smoke and stuff. That's why we couldn't find him in there. They couldn't find him. They didn't open up the armoire in the heat of the moment, literally the heat of the fire and the smoke. I, I think they couldn't find the ambassador there. So they can't find him, and they try several times and stuff. Eventually, they said, we need to get the hell out of here. The ambassador must be gone. We can't find him. So they all go back to the talk and stuff. They get into a little bit of a firefight as the DS guys go. The GRS car had come back onto the compound now, and they went up onto the roof, and they were sort of holding the point 
there while they got everything out of the talks. So they took the, the shark, they took the DVR cameras and stuff. They grabbed laptops, classified some weapons and stuff. They told the DS guys to go ahead and leave. And in fact, you know, just like the story portrayed a little bit, they said, go out the, build, go out the front gate, turn right, don't turn left. And, you know, the agent is completely dilapidated. It was the guy that was on the roof. Uh, he's exhausted and like, he goes out and he just says, I know where I'm going. And he turns left because that's the path, the normal path he would do to get back to where the GRS office was. The road kind of circled around. You had to go around the compound because the back gate wasn't open by the Italian cafe. It was open now because the GRS guys got it open. Uh, but normally you would come out and you would turn left and go through the little serpentine that the DS guys built and the, where the cops were and stuff, and you'd go there. So he went down there, and of course, he did get shot up. They were shooting at him, and he realized he's going the wrong way and stuff. And he turns around, and, and you know, the curb in, in Benghazi was like 12 or 14 inches. So he had to drive this car over. They're shooting at the car up. He's on the run flats and stuff. Finally goes across, and he's going against the road and stuff, and he makes his way back. A little bit of drama in the hole. They were being chased and stuff to get over there. I don't know if the DS guy said they really were chased going over there but they might've been followed getting over there. The GRS guys uh, have a little bit of a shootout there. They hop back in their car, they get back, they get back over there just after the DS guys on there. The DS guys come, they open up their door. They do literally pour out of the back of this car. They're all exhausted, smoke inhalation because they were all trying to go in there and get the DS ambassador and stuff out of there. They get back over and they're working now securing the hard point. They're getting first aid and stuff like that. And then that night, uh, a couple hours later, they get a phone call from the ambassador's cell phone, and they think it's a trick to lure him in there and, and try and get the GRS people out to come back and, and trap them again. Uh, so they kind of ignore the phone call there, but then a phone call comes in again and says, oh, we have your ambassador, so-and-so, we know where he is and stuff like that. And now it's a guy we know. Matter of fact, it's in one of the ambassador's contacts. He said, I'm down by the hospital, the ambassador's here. So you need to come get him. And of course, you know, GRS is like, we're not going down to the hospital. We don't have anybody until our militia gets here and we can go rescue the ambassador down there because otherwise it might be a trap. And it was later on, because uh, I remember early on in the investigation, we saw a video that night that had come across on a cell phone of the ambassador. And it looks like he's alive or something like that. But they basically, they dragged him out of the, the, the hut and they drop him onto the ground and they carry him over to a car and put him in the car. When they're in the car, it looks like he might have some movement. He might've been alive or something like that. You know, some people say, no, that's just the body being moved as they kind of pushed him into the car and drove him to the hospital, got to the hospital. And this friend of the embassy, who shall remain nameless, uh, he calls the, uh, the folks, the phone, and then gets the people down there and then they make an agreement. Well, yeah, we make an agreement basically to bring the body down to the airport later. We later interview some of the people, the doctors and nurses at the hospital and stuff, and they all confirmed everything that happened that night when the ambassador's body was brought in, this white male. They tried to get him. He was dead of smoke inhalation. They tried to revive him and stuff uh, and stuff, but he was, he was dead on arrival there. They worked on him for a while. We know that for a fact, uh, but they brought the body down to the airport and the militia and stuff and this guy, this friend of the embassy, got the body down to the airport when they left that morning on the charter flight and uh, flew back to Tripoli, a long motorcade to the airport. That was sort of a dramatization, but it was a long motorcade ride to the airport. You know, 
the other DOD guys that were unknown to, to the embassy and people that were just U.S. special forces that were in, in the country that showed up at the embassy in, in Tripoli and said, yeah, we're U.S. special forces. You heard you need help in Benghazi. We're willing to go. So you know, those guys shall remain nameless. You know, what they were doing in, in Tripoli, there's just these two U.S. DOD guys, special forces guys. They went out to, to Benghazi and they were part of the rescue team of other people, the DAT folks and stuff that went out there. So everybody made it back to Tripoli that morning and a C-17 flew in from Frankfurt, took out most of the, all the injured, took out most of the embassy. We left the skeleton crew back there for a little while and stuff. Like I said, I was part of the team that went to Tripoli and we did walk-ins, we did evidence gathering of people that were there. We worked with the bureau that were trying to put a case together for who was there and cell phones and stuff. And in the end, they grabbed the guy too. Abu Katala, uh, his name came across in, in one of the walk-ins, but it was known to us already. And it was a few years later where the DOD sent a snatch team in and basically rendered him to the FBI and they brought him back. He's faced, he's facing charges. He hasn't already been found guilty. They just got found guilty in the last year or two. Abu Katala, remember that. So that was my Benghazi and Tripoli thing. I never made it into Benghazi, but Tripoli, close enough. And I worked on the case, like I said, I worked on with uh, the DS agent, Tim, who works for Rewards for Justice. We put the, he mostly put the, the thing together, or, uh, the videos and we coordinated and we wrote the report, put the timeline and stuff together. And with being briefed to, to everybody and their sister, that was a senior US government official that wanted to know what really happened. So. That's the uh, most detailed account I've ever heard of Benghazi. Um, I have a few few buddies that actually a couple that came on a podcast that had done TDYs to, uh, to Tripoli and Benghazi prior to this and so they kind of set the scene but they weren't there uh one of them had, i think was a bsat classmate of one of the agents that was there so he got kind of some secondhand information but uh yeah this was certainly uh the most detailed account so thank you for sharing that yeah there was a um, state magazine story about some ds guys that went over there including chris Didi, the infamous chris Didi, who was part of a tdy in benghazi that did some firearms training with the local militia you know that we were hiring to be our armed bodyguards at the time there uh, yeah, Benghazi was, you know, not that unusual from a DS standpoint of, it looks like, it harkens me back to like Mogadishu, you know, you're kind of the end of the food chain and we don't know if we're going to stay or go. And so you're in temporary quarters and stuff like that. That did not surprise me in the least, but at least we got so much better since we were working the war zones of Afghanistan and Iraq. We got so much better at tactics and having proper equipment in there and communications and a back plans and when I was at the training center, we did a lot of, I, uh, I revised the whole, what's called Atlas training now, it was called High Threat at the time. I did a couple of trips into Iraq and Afghanistan, meet with people and do after action reports on incidents. And we brought all that back. I hired Scotty Blancet and Jeff Abramides to uh, both guys who had one had been in Iraq, one had been in Afghanistan to be the program coordinators for that. So we revised the whole HTTT High Threat Training Course program. We expanded it a couple of weeks. I fought with Greg Starr, who didn't want it to go so long, just as his kid was going through it. I was like, yeah. I started the live tissue lab that we had at High Threat Training. I started that. I started the uh, the SEER training episode that uh, was part of Atlas Training. I don't know if you went through Atlas. Went to the went yeah. to. I went through it in uh, two thousand. It was it was shorter then. I went through it in two thousand ten. Uh, is when I went through the the course, and but we did we did the the uh, the live tissue training, we did the seared training. Uh, so I added the, I added both those things on there. I got a lot of kudos from people, and some people were like, you know, but they're awful lot. But you know, again, I was like, 
you go into a war zone. You, you don't know what you're going to see in a war zone. You got to talk to the, the DOD guys that have been ambushed and had their MRAP blown up and stuff. You, you talk about how to use tourniquets and how to, you know, not be afraid to put your hand in someone's bloody stump and save their life kind of thing. So stuff like that were important. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Well, we're over two and two hours. Um, you are, I want to talk about one more thing. You are the VP for retirees for the, I always get this acronym so long, D-S-S-S-A-A. Did I get that right? Diplomatic Security Service Special Agent Association. Yeah. I'm a member. I just, uh, it's hard to, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a long acronym. What, what do you do? What do you do for, 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 for them? And uh, yeah, what's your role there? I got recruited back in, I guess, 2010 to be on the board. Jim Bacigalupo was the president at the time. And then when he, uh, he moved on, I became the president for about six years. And I've always tried to get people on board. Sometimes I get one or two or three board members to help me. And sometimes it was just me. Uh, but I kept it going and stuff. We had a store, you know, the stores were, were nonprofit, we're 501 C6 nonprofit. So we're not tax deductible. Uh, but we, we sell all the, the chum, the gear and stuff like that. The DS 25 year book. You have one of those 25 years in pictures. It's a D it's a coffee table book about DS. I put that together while I was president and stuff. They have some at the training center still for sale, but uh, we put that book together. It's a photo book. I got the sign inside page with, uh, Greg Starr, or was it uh, Eric Boswell? Eric Boswell, and I signed the foreword, the story about that. So I've always been involved in trying to help make DS better. As every agent you know, that I met feels the same thing. You come to a post, an RSO post, you want to leave it better than you left it, or a field office or a training magazine or something like that. So I, I've always tried to do, so I wanted to help. And we had the store, and the store sells all the chum, the stuff on the wall and stuff like that, you know, you know sells all that stuff to, to brand DS, and it raises money to do social events. For DS, we have networking events and stuff. And so eventually I got Garrett Smith to take over as president for me. And then uh, now Bob Becker Jr. is, uh, is the president. So I, I stayed on to help mentor the new role of people that are coming on, new people like you that are, you know, years on the job and stuff like that to, to get them in and start working the, the thing. So I became the vice president, vice president for retiree affairs. And I still participate in the national night out and the national Police Week 5K, we always run a DS team that we get awards for because we're the DS team is usually around 100 people, one of the biggest teams of all the federal law enforcement in the DC area. Uh, I still volunteer and go to New York. My uncle, because I'm from New York mostly, but I also worked at UNGA. So for years when I was the PII lead for UNGA, I'd supervise the lady that came up there, usually a lady or something, that would be the salesperson at the store. And I'd bring a little mobile store up to the UNGA. And then when I retired, I went up there and do that anyway. I had a family member lived in Manhattan, so I could stay at his house, be 10 blocks away from the Deepak up in uh, Unga. So I would, with the help of DS, they'd give me a little space in the storage room. I could set up a store up there and I get to see the people that don't see the DS store, you know, for the whole year, even though it's online, dssaa.org. You can order anything you need. You know, people go, oh, I, you never come to my field office in Dallas. I'm like, we don't go to field offices. You know, you ever heard of Amazon? It's, it's right there. So I try to help out and do things. And like I said, I'm mentoring the people on there. I'm probably going to move on next year. We're thinking about maybe moving down to North Carolina or something like that. So I, I try to help events and stuff. And I, like I said, I mentor the, the bosses and stuff to keep DS out there, go to the meetings, you know, be in front of Gentry Smith, go see Carlos and Mark Sulo and the bosses and stuff. Let them know that we're out there. We want their support and we want to support them. So I work closely with public affairs and stuff to do things. Chip McClatton's on there now, Bob Becker Jr., Scott Williams, uh, Barry Hopkins and one more. I got a group of people that are on there. 
just trying to help DX. We do monthly happy hours in the summertime. We get you know 30 or 40 people down there. We got Maria Maya now on the board. She's down at Fast C. Uh, great lady. I remember her from years ago when she ran the 5K. She was on so the I podcast. I her to be an officer. She was yeah, on the podcast. She came, she came on the podcast. Uh, yeah, I, for, I saw her on the, the podcast. Seat. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't listen to that one, but I saw her name on the on the podcast list. Uh, we recruited her to be down there, so we're expanding the DSSA down there now. We got a store that's open on the second floor by the Flax Training Classrooms. We've had two happy hours down there already. I'm going to try and do that more than that down there. We'll do a Police Week. We'll do some wreaths uh, next year for Police Week down there and stuff to sort of get DS down at the Fast C Training Center, part of the DS you know, family and uh, our support to them. So we hope that continues down there when Maria moves on. Well, if you need some support on the West coast, uh, let me know. We have, we have a, a, a few agents down here in San Diego, a few former agents down here in San Diego that we stay in touch. We're all in corporate security security now. Um, and uh, we stay in touch. And part of this, this podcast is, is basically dedicated to DS agents and those that support the mission. So I've had contractors, I've had Marine security guards. I've had mostly DS agents, either active DS agents, retired, former DS agents, uh, and that's the goal is to to just get the message out of what DS does. And it's, uh, you know, we're at about 40,000 downloads, a little less. You'll probably get us to 40,000 downloads with this. One. Uh, and uh, and and, you know, it's 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 it sounds like it's helpful for candidates or for aspiring DS agents. I've had several people that reach out to me. I do this stuff on social media as well. And people say, hey, I, I hadn't heard about DS. And then I heard about your podcast and I listen to your podcast. And I'll hit listen to all these folks that have come through. And I think this may be number 16 or 17. And so now they're interested. Um, I've worked with DS Public Affairs on some things, um, of course, with Active Agents, with the Fast C, and uh, and now you. So this is awesome. Thank you, uh, thank you so much for coming on. This was great. So you have some amazing You're stories. Um, I listened to some of the uh, some of your podcasts already. I'll go back and, and finish some. I know some of the people from Julie Cabus and Maria and Perkins and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, perhaps someone like Pete Hargraves uh, too. He'd he'd be a great interview. All right. Like I, I, we, we talked briefly before, too. If you want to put together a happy hour or something like that for the DS folks, get one of the agents from the RA to call us up and stuff like that. We'll send you a hundred bucks for food and stuff. They're going to get a little get together and stuff. Uh, you can be advanced notice. Maybe I'll hop on a plane. I'll come out there and say hi. All right. That's a deal. I can do that. I know the acting rack right now. So and, and a couple of the agents there were uh, BSAC classmates. So very good. Well, thanks, Jim. I'm going to I'm going to stop the, the recording, but, but sit tight. We're going to talk after this. I appreciate you coming okay. on. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. All right, all right. Jim Miner, everyone. Thank you, Jim, for coming on the podcast and sharing those amazing stories with us. And thank you, sir, for your service to this country. Uh, We greatly appreciate it. Okay, now this is the time I get to tell you uh, how you can learn more about the Diplomatic Security Service and other uh, global security information should you be interested. Um, uh, one of the ways is this podcast. If you could share this podcast, if you could like, if you could comment, if you think it added value to your life, uh, you can share it, tell people about it, post it. Uh, and I would certainly be, be, be grateful. And those who are interested in the career or pursuing uh, a law enforcement career that may not know about DS or people just looking not sure what they want to do in life. Uh, it's an amazing career, and I think the guests that have come on this podcast have certainly conveyed that message. Uh, other co- a couple other things I do. I have a Patreon. Um, I've talked about this uh, 
a little more frequently lately. Uh, but basically, the Patreon is a is a uh, subscription account. You can add, you know give five dollars up to seventy five dollars, and uh, you get more content. So you'll get extra articles, you'll get extra stories, you'll get uh, discounts on apparel that are on the website, you'll get uh, early access to the podcast, and that's like the basic level. There's also other levels in between where we can do networking. We do networking events. Um, also. However, there is an opportunity for those of you who are uh, studying to become DS special agents, who are practicing, preparing for the Diplomatic Security Service uh, Board of Examiners exam, the BECS, which is a very difficult interview. Uh, I support you in that preparation. Um, we do mock interviews, writing samples. I give you feedback um, and just kind of guide you along in the process. There's a lot of times there's questions that people have. Uh, and I support them in that. Now, I'll tell you, I, I don't work for DS any, any longer. Uh, I don't know the answers. I don't know the questions, but I can help you pull out those stories from your background, from your life, and apply them to those 12 dimensions. I can help you with scenarios and get your mind right, and your mindset right, and thinking through scenarios and what may happen. And so that's all available. Off the, it's uh, patreon.com slash off the X underscore Inc. Check it out and uh, can support you there. If you haven't seen my YouTube channel, this is free, YouTube Cody Perron. I put out almost 30 videos now all about DS. People submit questions, whether it's through Instagram or YouTube or my email, and I go and I make a very boring video sometimes. But it still adds value, uh, which is my objective, to add value and to entertain. Uh, and so uh, I talk about everything from life as a DS special agent, you know, just nuanced questions that people have uh, and I go out there and I put some videos out there that could be helpful. So check it out, YouTube Cody Perron. There's a Facebook group called Becoming a DSS Agent. It is the only group of its kind that I know of, certainly the first one. Um, and it's a group where aspiring candidates or people just looking to learn about DS to potentially maybe apply uh, that... Uh, has also active DS special agents, retired DS special agents, former DS special agents myself that might have done 10 years or so. And they're all collaborating and asking questions and communicating, you know, those that know the answers are communicating the questions. And it's really a group to kind of get past all the misinformation that's out there on these different forums. Um, it's a great, great asset. I think people have learned a ton from it. Um, people are on there, you know, talking about, uh, what different things about DS asking questions. I have some group ex experts that I've designated uh, that come in and ask questions. And if you're a DS agent listening and you want to support and you want to help, you want to give back, you want to help get the best DS agents in there and, and uh, you know, give them good, solid information, please join. You know, we support that. Um, and uh, there are several uh, active agents, former retired agents in there from all different levels that are supporting. So go check that out. Instagram, off the X underscore Inc. I post things about DS, about high threat protection, about global security, a lot about personal safety lately. Um, that is a another avenue that, uh, you know, that I put content out so you can check it out. Off the X underscore Inc. Uh, my book is how this all started. Agents Unknown, True Stories of Life as a Special Agent in the Diplomatic Security Service. It's available on Amazon. It's available uh, in on Audible and iBooks, Barnes & Noble online. You can get it in digital. You can get it in print. And again, of course, on Audible, you're going to get an audio. Um, <clears throat> doing great. Five stars online. 
Uh, got some great feedback from people, and uh, you know, I have something else in the works coming up, and I'll keep you all posted on that. I do have gear. I do have a website. I have gear on the on the website. I have uh, patches and stickers and hats. Um, and if you choose to go on that website, uh, it's CodyParon.com. Uh, we also have some hoodies, some high threat protection hoodies. I have some. It'll be great for winter time. They're very popular. They sell out. I don't know if I'm going to do them again. So go check out the hoodies again. CodyParon.com. Thanks again, all of you, for the support. And as always, hit me up and let me know how I can help. Info at CodyParon.com is my email. DM me on any of these different mediums, and I will get back to you. As again, I appreciate the support, and I'll catch you on the backside. Thank you.